Welcome to the CDC Podcast, 2014 End of Year Edition. I am your Master of Ceremonies, Eric Swain. With me this year is Senior Curator and Captain of the Starship Critical Distance, Chris Ligman. Make it so. Systems Administrator and Head of Operations, Alan Williamson. All right. <laughs> Come on, you're like the stereotypical, like, okay, you're not Scottish, but you should have said, I can't make it happen, Captain, or something like that. <laughs> and, oh, oh, damn it, now i got to redo this. No, keep going, keep going, keep going. No, I should have made him the engineer. Oh. <laughs> Head of engineering. Oh. And Francophone correspondent and bridge science officer, Lana Polanski. Bonjour. <laughs> <laughs> We're off to a great start. <laughs> uh, you know what? Everyone needs this after at the end of this year. Yeah. 2014, or as I like to call it, 2013 2.0 until August. It's overall it's been a pretty miserable half year and this is the lighter side of the holidays. We want to Focus on more interesting and happy stuff and things that haven't been covered exhaustively and extensively elsewhere. So we're going to move right along to a different topic, and we're changing the format up this year. So instead of exhaustively covering every minor thing that might or might not have been important, we're just going to focus on a few more interesting topics from a broad range of subjects that happened in 2014. Starting I, with, I uh, really enjoyed the six-hour podcast that we did. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the two people who listened to it, one of which was Eric. <laughs> Multiple times. <laughs> uh, but mobile games have really started to get come into their own. They're more than just those little time wasters, angry birds, and cut-the-rope-style games, as they seem to have become a cultural force into their own, in the mainstream and in the critical communities. I know, Chris, you have become somewhat obsessed with the Kim Kardashian game. That sounds... Uh, obsessed makes it sound like I can't stop any time I want, and I totally can. <laughs> you're number one in the world... Like no, num- no, just number one for the game. This isn't like a global leaderboard. Oh, okay. Chris, like are, you, are you power gaming the Chris... The, the Chris Kardashian game. Chris Kardashian? He actually gave you a Kardashian There is, there is actually a Chris Kardashian, so I, I don't think that I could really move into that role. I'm not power gaming. What would that even mean? I don't know. Optimizing your outfit? I only played it for a few weeks. Oh, that's a few weeks, but you still have a pretty good idea of how it plays. Yeah. It's just the same as any other sort of like free-to-play game with in-app purchases. Tap, tap, you know, tap, 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 and oh, by the way, did you want to get all of this for like ninety nine ninety nine? and you click no, and you go on playing? I think, I I will admit, I've, play, I've spent more money playing on it than I would have cared to in other circumstances, and it's getting to the point now where, yeah, I'm number one in whatever sort of local leaderboard, so I'll probably <laughs> set it aside at some point, but... There's a Christmas didn't, event on right now. I can't let it go right now. There's so many things. Didn't you marry Willa, Willia, Willa Pope or something? Willa Pape. Willow Pape. Willow Pape. Okay. Oh, what? Now, okay. Now, that would be pretty awesome. But, okay, look. 
I'm pretty sure that Patricia Hernandez did an article about this for Kotaku, but Willow Cape is one of, like, the coolest rivals in video games since probably, like, Gary and Pokemon. She is incredibly annoying, she's incredibly petty and cruel and spiteful, and she'll do everything to thwart you, and she always seems to be, like, one step ahead of you and everything, and, ah, oh, she's really effective. And because of that... And also the fact that, you know, occasionally she'll show the sweeter side. I'm completely in love with her. And, I, and I'll tell anyone that. It's okay. I didn't actually marry her, though. There was I did a screenshot where I mocked it up so it looked like we got married, but we were not actually Aww. married. You can't actually do that if you're a woman and you play the game. If you were playing as a male character, you could romance and marry her. But I don't know why you'd want to do that. Huh. I do like the implication that she's a conspiracy theorist. That's pretty funny. Yeah. The very first time I think that you interact with her, she's just like, what sort of like global conspiracy like had to take place for you to get, you know, work in this industry? Hashtag Obamacare, hashtag hashtag chemtrails. (laughs) (laughs) To anyone listening wondering why we're talking about this game, it apparently took off in like no other way that like a free-to-play mobile game just seemed can't to do, because this is technically a remake of a game that the studio made prior that went absolutely nowhere. Right, they just kind of reskinned it and put Kim Kardashian's name on it. And yeah, I'm sure that the Kardashian name did go to some extent to, you know, kind of give it that sort of like mainstream appeal, but I think it also did the work of getting it into game journalist inboxes, to talk about, because it's a lot easier to say, look at this game that's based on this lady that has a reality show and a sex tape. Let's talk about how bad it is. And, of course, people from that go, well, actually, it's pretty good. And uh, no, no worse than other games like that? No, it's not worse. It, that's I thought that was really overstated. Yeah, well, I mean, this idea that it's any worse than the kind of war porn that we're used to. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, to me, it was just, oh, it's there, yeah. drug, move on. And, I mean, and it appeals to certain people, and that's fine. <laughs> and I can't say how much of this is, like, symptomatic of, like, the Kardashian version versus the original, but, like, for me, it's almost like a feminine power fantasy, sort of like if you juxtaposed it with something like Grand Theft Auto V as being, like, a Los Angeles power fantasy for all these, like, traditional, overhyped masculine kind of, like, ideals then Kardashian is, like, the feminine equivalent of that. I mean, you start out the game, right, in sort of, like, this Cinderella, oh, when will my prince come sort of situation where you are just discovered in this very traditional Hollywood way by an existing star. And from there, you pretty much just dominate the landscape and show off your ostentatious wealth. And, you know, it's it's not the most involved mechanically, but I also think that it has a certain genuine affection for its subject matter, it's really reassuring to me, as a Los Angeles resident who actually sees a lot of these landmarks that are in the game, to me it's like seeing a side of Los Angeles that I, as a fairly non-wealthy resident of the city, would never get to see otherwise. There was also a, a good piece, I want to say it was on the Daily Dot, uh, where the uh, author int- interviewed a lot of players, both male and female, as to why they do, and what they found was that a lot of the male players, and there are apparently a significant amount, once you can get them to admit it, do it because you get to play dress-up, and that's something that lacks from a lot of AAA games, of just the fantasy of looking good. It's true, although the uh, male costume options leave something to be desired, if I might awesome. say. That's true. Yeah. Just, that's true in the real just, world. Uh, tasteless? 
or uh, not a lot of them? I don't know. Have you seen? I've posted screenshots of some of the male NPCs that, and there are some that look okay, but most of them look like they got dressed in the dark. And I don't a know. A lot if of it's... them, yeah, a lot of them look like they're ex-members of S Club Seven. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know if it's the game makers just having a bit of fun, or there are really just like no freaking options. But every no, time I've tried. A... Could it just a random it like? Generator? Could be that, but most of the women's outfits are much better put together. So, mm. might be making the assumption that you know it's mostly teen girls that are going to play it. So they're making the assumption that they should probably put more of their resources into. Oh, if you look at like the comparative wardrobes for men and women, there's way more in the women's section for sure. Yeah, yeah, for sure. That's not surprising. Mm-hmm. Though it's. Curtain Kardashian isn't the only mobile game that's gotten a lot of chatter about. It isn't? Like, <laughs> no, it is not. Wow. Because apparently a little game by the name of Flappy Bird took all of our attention for for a whole month. Well, took all of my attention for about 15 seconds, I think. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. <laughs> Luckily, I'm not the only person on Earth. For those who don't know, uh, Flappy Bird is a game by a, was it Vietnamese designer? I think so, yeah. Dong so. Nguyen? Yeah. I wasn't. I wasn't oh, even going to try and pronounce it. Well, that's that. You were wise because I got it wrong. So. Well, his, his developer name is Gears. Okay, let's go with that. Uh, a developer, but with the pseudonym Gears, uh, created this game in 2013. Just put it up on the app stores, like one of his many "I'm learning how to make games" experiments, and it just took off for some reason in 2014. To the point that he was reportedly, although it was later turned out, no, that's not true, rebuttal, $50,000 a day off of the ads. And then it just ter- spiraled into basically that this is Phil Fish, except it would be this is Dong Nguyen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And because just getting the attention was no matter what, because no one knew anything about him, and it was the attention that was, like, creating this, sp- this spiral of just hate and frustration. Come to think of it, Kathy Sierra coined a really good term for this, I think, later this year, which was the Kool-Aid point, right? Yeah. It got yeah. to a yeah. point yeah. where, it, like, to outsiders, it seemed like there was too much attention, serious attention being paid to this thing, and that was not acceptable, because this yeah. guy was an outsider. There was also a lot of really weird anti-Asian tension mm-hmm. that went into a lot of the dismissals of the game. Uh, what was what was that headline that described him as a shadowy Asian? I didn't see that one. Yeah, it was, see that one it, was, uh, it was later changed, but there was some really weird... Yeah, I... I, I I want to say Kotaku, but I don't know for sure, so don't don't. Kotaku don't. was the one that called him like a ripped off. Yeah, well, yeah, it was. Oh, it was, yeah, yeah. It was, yeah, it was that article that was saying that you know he'd ripped off all these assets from Nintendo, and it which was, he you know, hadn't. He hadn't, and, and that it was just bloatware, and that he was, you know, it was he was just he just made some clone, or you know, and he didn't really put the work in, or whatever. It evoked all of these. Robert Yang had a really good piece about this, where it evoked all of these stereotypes about. The shadowy Asian that that cons people, especially in tech, mm-hmm. by making cheap uh, knockoffs and profiting from them, from people who don't know any better, and that was really unfortunate because, as a few people like Bennett Foddy kind of pointed out, it's actually a really well-executed game. 
it's actually for what it is for you know a simple time waster it's it's very fine tuned it's actually pretty high quality for what it is anyone can tell that because if you try one of the clones and i did try a few of the clones you can just tell wow these are terrible in comparison because it's just like it's those tiny fractions of a second of like animation and hitboxes that you don't notice until it's wrong. Yeah. It was a really weird thing to blow up in the way it did. Another thing that Robert Yang pointed out was that, you know, had he been white, it wouldn't have been as complicated. You know, he would have been like an indie darling or whatever. Right. He would have um, had job offers, you know, filling the yeah. inbox. Yeah. But this was full of all kinds of weird speculation about him and who he is and how he made this game and, and whatever. And it got really invasive for something that, you know, I, like, I played the game, and I just thought it was this cute, earnest little thing that this guy made for fun that he put out into the world for people to look at, and I didn't see any side agenda or malice in it at all, and I didn't really understand what the hubbub was. I tried it, and I I got to, like, 15 pipes eventually, and I said, yeah, I'm done. Yeah. It, it's like, I don't actually understand where this consuming vibe it comes on to people where this has to be your thing. It's like, there's nothing here to talk about. It's just something you do, and then you don't do, and then you move on. But it doesn't happen like that. The best thing I heard about the legacy of Flappy Bird, I think it came from Ted Dinolas, who is, you know, as we all know, the lead programmer on uh, Read Only Memories, said that it was sort of like a hello world for the mobile developer now, that at least there was a time, especially after like the game was first pulled from the iOS store, where everyone was making a Flappy Bird clone as sort of like a just a test to see if they could do something. It was very easy to build, and mm-hmm. so it became just like Hello World was for programmers and other constructs, you know, just something to kind of like to bootstrap yourself up into po- programming very quickly. And I feel like if that's the legacy of Flappy Bird in that, you know, it just becomes the sort of thing that everyone shares in. I mean, that doesn't really replace the sort of harassment that Nguyen went through, but I think, uh, at least on some level, it's kind of, like, left a sort of lasting cultural mark, at least. An unexpected cultural mark, to say the least. Mm-hmm. He's back, though, isn't he? He brought out a second game with some kind of... Swing copter. Yeah, swing it's copter. not his second, because, like, Flappy Bird itself wasn't even his first. No. He has, like dozens of these tiny things that just didn't go anywhere and yeah. he's fine with that. Yeah, he had like a little soccer game too. Apparently those swing copters is a much more challenging involved game because of the Nate because it actually adds inertia mm-hmm. to uh to the actual play, so it requires a little bit of strategy to get through. I remember him saying that, you know, after Flappy Bird it just it like it got too big even for him. Mm-hmm. And he put these games out there for fun and it was nice that one got weirdly successful. It got blown way out of proportion. Um, what was really interesting is why he took it off. People couldn't handle the explanation because he said it was people were harming themselves yeah. because they were too addicted to it. It was too to addictive, it. and it, he thought that he was it became destructive, uh, and he didn't want to contribute to that. And he also, I remember the profile about him where he was like, you know, I was just this like kid, and now people recognize me, and it's really bizarre. And all I did was make this little phone game. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I remember him saying something to the effect of, you know, I just want to move on from this and make something else and just make games. That's all I want. <laughs> Honestly, the entire thing is more sociologically interesting than it is from a game perspective. Yeah, yeah, it is. Because even after he pulled it, then he got another inundation of hate to the people who weren't realizing that he was getting an inundation of hate. Yeah. 
it, at that point, it didn't even make any sense because they were like blaming him for taking it off because <laughs> he was selfish or whatever. I, I don't even know what the rationale was. Yeah, it's first it was kind of like, your, your game sucks, Flappy Bird sucks, fuck you. And then he took it off, and they're like, oh, I can't believe you took off Flappy Bird, you suck, fuck you. It's like, you really can't win, can you? You can't win. <laughs> yeah, I think I was talking to a, a couple of people, I was talking to like TJ Thomas and then Tony Rocca the other day, and I think it was Tony who said that like you're constantly in an abusive relationship with Twitter. Mm-hmm. Because there's no <laughs> pleasing so it. You're never, so you can't true. please it. No, everyone wants something different from you, especially if you have any amount of momentum or visibility, and you become a pub. You, you become like a like a public commodity at that point. For him, especially, it's not something he was aiming for. It was completely an unexpected thing that just blew up out of nowhere. And all of a sudden, he's getting weird amounts of love and adoration and also weird, weird amounts of hate and suspicion and just malignancy from people he's never met. From, and no matter what he seems to do, there's no winning. 2014, the year you can't win. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sounds, sounds about right, yeah. Flappy Bird got cloned a lot, but that actually became like a, a big thing with threes. Mm-hmm. In fact, that became, like, the game's identity for, like, the first few months of its existence. Uh, well, there was, yeah, there was threes, and then they did, was it 2048, it was called? Which yeah, was, well, uh, it was actually which, a, yeah. a clone of a clone, I think. Yeah, there was, like, a P, there was, like, just a browser version, and then someone took that and directly ported it to the iOS, and then it, and then because it was, like, free and ad-supported, mm-hmm. it got above threes on the store. But it was kind of like the difference between three. Like, there's actually a subtle difference between you know threes and twenty forty eight, where you know threes has the whole you can only add a two in one mechanic. But I think twenty forty eight, you just only get two as the base unit, and you kind of add them together. So actually, yeah. like one of the most interesting things about the game wasn't cloned. It's kind of like cloning Mario, but not including the same like acceleration and jumping physics. And so it looks the same. But actually, if you if you know where to look and you know like where the nuance is in the design, then you can see how like as the as the developer of that, you'd be really frustrated. And I think like there's definitely a really long, really good blog post about this where he kind of talks about the design of threes and how long it took them to do it because it took like a it took like a year to make, didn't it? It took them a really yeah. long time to actually get all those mechanics nailed down. And then you know he was sort of saying, "Is there something that came along that's like ninety percent of what we made?" But it's like they always say, you know that. Whenever you're making any kind of creative project, you spend about 10% of your time making 90% of the product, and then you spend the remaining 90% of your time polishing like the remaining 10%. Yeah, that sounds about um, right. So, so they took they they took the uh, yeah all the all the, like the hard work and just kind of chucked this thing out there. But then it got to the point where you could actually you had um you had a doge 248 where you could like add add different Shiba Inu pictures together. Uh, and you could even make your own. People were dropping their own. You could drop their own images in and make your own. And I think 2048 got open sourced as well. Yeah, no, it's yeah, it kind the, of how it started, right? In the, to the point that people were just like wholesale copying it and then selling it for themselves to see what they could make off of it. Or just titling them in such a way that they'd actually get onto the ser- searches for when people were looking for this game. Hmm. And to be That's fair, good. actually, a few of the clones are pretty interesting. There's one where you do, like, atomic fusion, where it's actually closer to threes in sort of the limitations of combination. And I would say, actually, fairly educational. But, you know, I think the point is valid. I think what the, the central concern was at the time when all of this kind of, like, spiraled out of control is, like, you know, here's this very small team of developers that, you know, just 
put a lot of time and effort into this game, which immediately got, you know, imitated and cloned, and, like, how do you prevent that from happening? Can you prevent that from happening? Should that be a thing to dissuade other people from, you know, joining this particular, you know, game development space? It's a a tough balance, because on the one hand, I mean, uh, games, and especially mobile games, are so open to plagiarism. There's no protections. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, the other extreme of that is, you know, King, you know, bullying, yeah. bullying, and, and, and patent trolling people with the IP Banner law. Saga. Yeah. Because it had the word saga, saga in it. it. Mm-hmm. And you end up with things like Candy Jam as a response, and it becomes a whole thing. So there's got to be a way of, of, of balancing creators' rights without stifling creativity and without monopolizing. It's a deep question, though. It's very yeah. hard to, like... Like, how can you how can you copyright an idea like that? How can you, yeah. you pass the idea of, of combining two cards? It's like it's kind of like um, yeah, it's when people a... get accused of plagiarizing other people's songs. There's only so many ways you can make those chords. Like, if you're it's... making a a puzzle game, there's only so many ways. Like, if you're doing a falling block game, right? There's only so many ways those bits can fall. You can do a Tetris type thing, or you can do like a a columns puyo puyo type thing. There's only so many ways you can do that. If you're doing a platform game, there's only so many ways you can actually make that. You know, you, you can't once. Mario 64 came out. I mean, obviously these things seem like kind of obvious in hindsight, but what other ways would you do a 3D platformer apart from that kind of way? It's like, right. it's really like, how else would you do a camera or how else would you do like a health system or, you know, I don't know how people breathe underwater. There's so many of these things where, yeah, like I said, it's like kind of like music or cinematic technique. How many ways can you move a camera? How many ways can you yeah, I mean, I and, mean, And, you know, what's, what is an idea that belongs to the artist as a form of copyright and what is just something that's kind of public... In information, that's the that's the really hard part, and that's why it's like it's impossible I mean, if, to if police we were, that. If we, were, if we were copywriting, you know, form or technique, as most punk music would never get made. Yeah, if you could if you had to copyright like chords. You know, ninety percent of punk music is dead in the water. You can't do that in the United States. It's like specifically law. You cannot cop copyright mechanics on the implementation. Yeah, um, it's the same thing with like, like food. You can't copyright a recipe. Well, I mean, the thing is that when we get to the level of companies like King, for instance, like going after companies for you know things like having the word saga in a title, it's like that's not even in the domain of copyright. You know, we're entering into like trademark law now, which is also, yeah. of course, an area in you know uh, especially American like legislation that is completely abused by large companies in order yeah. to suppress, you know, individual creation. Now, Alana, you talked about Candy Jam uh, a bit ago, and I know that you were involved yeah. with that quite a bit, and you've been talking about that a bit. Like, would you like to... It, sorry, Eric, I'm kind of taking over the moderator job yeah. for a second here. Would you like to tell our listeners a bit more about that? Yeah, uh, so I'll see what I can, what specific details I can remember, but the the sort of general thing of that was King has basic, well, had uh, a really nasty reputation, I don't know what they've been up to lately, of patent trolling other, like, independent developers or small companies for over uh, Candy Crush. And they had trademarked uh, individual nouns to bully other developers with. So Saga, Candy, words like that, which is very poor form, but technically legal. And they were using it to quash competition. The rationale that the King executives gave for doing this was, well, you know, if you go to, you know, the app store or whatever, you'll see so many Candy Crush clones that were just trying to protect their intellectual property. That being said, there's, I mean, 
Candy Crush is not the first of its kind either. And in fact, there's there's some very strong evidence that the prototype um, that went on to become Candy Crush was plagiarized by another independent developer who was actually then cut out of the development process. So, and in that case, also cut out of like contract deals, so he doesn't even get royalties for it. So, Candy Jam was made as a response to this patent trolling and this trademark bullying that King was doing by indiv- independent developers who made just like like a hundred games or some ridiculous number of games, all utilizing the words that King had trademarked. Mm-hmm. So saga games, candy games, and they were all really satirical and ironic and punching up kind of stuff. And it was actually like a really, I'm, like I, I'm, I'm a little disillusioned uh, with jams as the go-to for indie developers, especially as a means of protest. Mm-hmm. Like, what are you going to do every single time you have a problem in the games industry is make, <laughs> make a game about it. Eventually, it sort of becomes toothless, and it and it sort of uh, loses the plot a little bit. Like, is this an effective method of pro- protest? Well, after a while, raising awareness is just that. But in this case, it was interesting because they were actively breaking the very trademark law that King was using as a cudgel against them, the people who were who were running and who were participating in this jam. So they were. <laughs> By, by doing this, technically speaking, they were breaking the law. And they were doing it in a way that, you know, is King really going to litigate against every single person who's made a game in this jam? Probably not. So it was kind of, it was a way of overwhelming them with independent creativity that they couldn't litigate against or wouldn't, wouldn't have bothered to anyway. So I thought it was really interesting in the way they did that. It was actually, and it was, it was actually genuinely effective and funny. And I haven't heard a lot from King since. Should have made a so, game called uh, Litigation Litigation Crush Saga. There, you go. <laughs> there were a few really good ones. There was one that was done in Microsoft Excel, nice. <laughs> where it, you were like a stockholder and you had to check the stock of your like mobile game. Hmm. It was really well done. I had actually forgotten this that happened this year. That's the funny thing, right? That. And we'll probably return to this theme quite a lot, but it feels like everything before August just kind of belonged to a different decade. Mm-hmm. More so this year than most others. Hey, On the... What? something? What's that, what's that rustling? Oh, is it... Uh, sorry, I'm making origami. I'll stop. What? <laughs> I thought you were having like a, I thought you were doing like the thing I used to do in church when I was young, having a cheeky polo mint and trying not to alert everybody to your presence. But <laughs> it, happen, it always happens at like you know, the quietest part of the church service, and suddenly you're the you're the guy with the bubble wrap next to a microphone. <laughs> <laughs> Oops, sorry. It's like me. It's like me trying to have a stealth west game. Like, okay, hold on. Oh shit! Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, what was stealth about that, Alan? Yeah, that was suave. You should be James Bond. <laughs> Not, uh, uh, so now we finally come on to the real topic of the podcast, Idris Elba. <laughs> <laughs> we can't just giggle after saying his name, because that sounds, it sounds like we were against him somehow. No, okay, oh. for context, listeners, before we started, we were going on a big swoon fest about how excited we were over the prospect of Idris Elba being James Bond. There you go. Although some of us were swooning over him getting his shirt off in The Wire. Eh, well. (laughs) (laughs) I'm in it for the gratuitous love scenes. 
<laughs> in the wire? No. It's <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, remember when think, he and Dominic West just have that intimate moment? You think we're joking? Go watch. It does happen. Mm. Just not the way you're thinking. <laughs> I've only seen up to like halfway through season two of The Wire, and then I heard they're they're re- they're releasing it in HD. And mm. yep. David Simon says that it's just about acceptable, so I might watch that. Okay. Cool. Sorry, that was a total total digression there. But. Yeah. And probably the. Or oh god, how did he how did he call it? Because it was the perfect way to describe this game, and that is what I get for not looking this up ahead of time. Given Simon's famous piece on Candy Crush Saga. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> god damn it! I should never start this thing. And you know what, Alan, stall for me. Right? Who likes who likes um, cheese? <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were gonna say short shorts. Shorts? You like who likes? You like short shorts? I think short shorts are okay. <laughs> That's not how the song goes. You've ruined it. So what? Why? I want to stop you, but Firefox isn't loading. Honed. <laughs> are, 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 are you gonna? Are you gonna cut this or is this just? Okay. Okay. Uh, back, back to mobile games, as because this was the perfect way to describe it, and I know someone's going to argue with it, but Mountain wins the most insignificant game with significant amount of press award. Oh, that was uh, Jed Presgrove's um, yes title for it. You know, I, I I rather liked Mountain. Yeah, I thought it was okay. I thought that Ian Bogus's article on it on how it exemplifies his book Alien Phenomenology was pretty spot on and compelling. I don't think I'd read that, but it sounds like I should, because that sounds really interesting. I guess my reaction to Mountain was, it was good for what it was. Mm. I thought it was sort of interesting, but I've seen lots of games like this, because I dwell in that weird part of games creation, where people make things like that. Uh, and, I, and I've seen stuff like that, so it wasn't as like earth-shattering to me. Like I wasn't as confused or had to, as much difficulty parsing it as a game, just because I'm used to that kind of thing. And I, uh, to be honest with you, I didn't think it was a bad game, but I didn't think it was the best of its kind either. Sorry. Can you actually can you actually do something in Mountain? I'm not trying to be I'm not trying to be facetious here because you because you name the Mountain and you can kind of rotate it. But is there actually anything else you can do? Well, nice. yes. Well, I mean, we're getting into spoiler territory, but yes, when uh, a sudden like death scenario comes upon you. If you smash your keyboard, you can avert its destruction. Because I played it on tablet, so and it never came up. It's just yeah. I just while I'm doing other things, I just kept it off to the side and let it waste its own time in my battery. It's sort but of like a it's like a like a screen. I don't know how this got. I don't know how this got any attention. That's what baffles because me. Because it was I, the computer uh, animator. Well, I mean, I read a really good piece. Yeah, on it was David O'Reilly because I commissioned and edited this piece, but it was what. Well, Alan? I think you got cut off. Alan, you disappeared. No! <laughs> uh, now we'll the... never understand. There's a conspiracy to keep us from talking about Mountain, I guess. Hashtag Obamacare. And... <laughs> Illuminati. And Skype oh, is right now. Okay. I'm Try again, Alan. Start from the top. Okay, so. Welcome to the 2014 Critical Dis. Oh, sorry, sorry. sorry. <laughs> 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 um, 
so yeah, um, Caitlin Tromblay wrote a piece for issue nine of Five Out of Ten about mountain and uh, as an analogy with her depression. And up until that point, I thought absolutely nothing of the game. And then after I after I read that piece, I played it a bit, mainly to take screenshots. And although I still didn't really like it, at least was able to appreciate it a bit better. But I think like being solved. Did you lose you again? Wow, really? <laughs> Just for like a second, but it was like in the middle of a word. Okay, so games don't have to be all things to all people, and it's okay for you to like something that other people don't like. And I am, I am secure enough as a human being that I don't mind that I didn't like Mountain. I think that's that's no fun. You're not playing that's, that's the gamer English. game here. And we're... it just cut out again. What? What? <laughs> okay. We're not okay, allowed me, to, disagree, me, to politely disagree I'm gonna about jump, things. That's I'm not gonna how it works in games. Hang up and switch no. in into a different is either... Wi-Fi network. In games, everything is either the best or the worst, and there's no gray area ever. And and you have to put your your personal integrity on the line when you declare something one or the other. So yeah. so there's no way that someone can politely part ways with someone and anything like that. It's just not acceptable. It's not possible. I wrote a piece. I wrote a piece on this last week about how it seems like differentiating from form is far more. Uh, what's the word? Riot-inducing than it, it, than anything that of content that a work could possibly say. Mm. Like because the the piece I used as a work was literally just here are some tips on how to write more evocatively, and it is literally like use active and the content of it is literally use active sentences, cut out unnecessary words, don't ramble. On. It's like the most basic writing 101, except the way it's presented is is just is just 50 links which each link going to a new page, which is the next section of the piece. And when this was published years and years ago, the, the people were incensed by this post. Mm. The people being... And the readers, yeah. the audience. But it's just but, like, I mean, I'm not understanding the general significance of this. I mean, there were lots of, it, like, you know, clickbaity things like that. But, sorry, I don't really like the term clickbait, but you know what I mean. It's just like, that was yeah. that there was that sort of shit a lot you know, a few years ago. This was 2004. Yeah. This was before the click, that sort of clickbait thing rose, but the idea is that just changing up the form from the normal, here, here is a piece of writing straight through is enough to, to incense like the internet version of a riot. And mountain seems the same way. He says, okay, we're changing how things are done in a video game. And even though it says absolutely nothing, people are incensed by it. You know what though? That, that, genuinely frustrates me because no you're not this has been done this has been done multiple times it's not new it's not new at all and not only has it been done in games it's been done if you're talking about technical minimalism or you're talking about like a certain aesthetic you know castle on the pyrenee looks almost exactly like mountain so it's not like this this, this kind of aesthetic certain kind of uh environmental surrealism hasn't been done before it has mm. a lot and the idea that games are so, I guess, I mean, we've, uh, I guess it's a little bit cliche to say games are insular, not that that's wrong. But I think it's also, too, uh, you could dedicate a whole other podcast to this, the, the idea that, you know, games as, as a discourse are very ahistorical and they're very, like, the discourse is, is uh, very contextualized, is very framed by a certain narrative of industry progressivism. Mm -hmm. Uh, of uh, in like sort of technological progressivism within the industry, and so 
all of our discourse is centered around not what games do and are, but around certain conventions that we've become familiar with that we associate with games. And that's why when games like this, unless they have some very famous, important developer behind them, never, ever get any press, um, usually because they're made by weird indie people that nobody pays any attention to. But also because we've never created a discourse to talk about games like this. And it, it, it exists in other art forms. It's, it's, it's not new. And like I was, uh, that's why I really appreciated like Zwani, Zwani Stewart, who I work with regularly, wrote uh, a really simple, easy-to-follow framework for talking about alternative games, surreal games, experimental games, avant-garde games, to talk about the kinds of aesthetics and formalisms that Mountain is trying to engage with. It does an okay job, I think. I don't think it does the best job. But this idea that it caused such a zeitgeist for doing something that was not particularly special, that really grinds my gears. Mm-hmm. And that's no, my I think rant. It, no, I, no, I think it's funny. You say in there that we don't really have a discourse for that. And I think that, or at least it nominally was changing at one point. Like before August, I would say that we are sort of evolving into a more sophisticated, diversified sort of discourse around games, yeah. including alt games. And yeah. we see yeah. what happened with that when we tried to do that. Yeah, I we I don't I don't want to dwell on it too much obviously, but I think it won't be stuck. It's definitely been a little curtailed. Mm. Uh but this is something that has been building for a long time. There's a huge cottage, cottage industry of alternative games development of proposing alternative models of play which are nonetheless valid and interesting. And I think that's that's happening more and more. And it, it, it's going to hit a few roadblocks, but a lot of the stuff I think is going to trickle up. I'm still, I'm not super optimistic in terms of how this is going to get integrated into the industry. I think there's going to be a lot of exploitation that we've seen already. And a lot of the people doing the most foundational work probably aren't going to get the credit for it. Not to be a pessimist, but that's I think typical. It's, I think it's that's very easy typical. and understandable to be a pessimist lately. But that's that's typical across industries, especially creative spheres. That's really normal. That's <laughs> unfortunately. But I do think that some of those ideas, at least, are going to find homes. They're probably going to be modified for mainstream consumption. But I don't think that like these, these ideas are out there in the world. People are working on these games and on criticism around them. And I don't think that's going to stop. I think it's a little bit hindered. Unfortunately, it's I don't know if it'll get to a, a level that I'd like it to get to in my lifetime, if it gets there at all. But I think it's there's a there's an acceleration towards a different way of talking about and thinking about games. And I don't I don't think any amount of reactionary pushback is really going to stop it. So that's my silver lining. That's that's why we're here, folks. We're here to be the change, aren't we? <laughs> you know, that's why we're here curating things. I'm here to be the crisp twenty dollar bill. Screw the change. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't mean to hurry us along here, but I think we're about 45 minutes in and we're still on our yeah. first topic. So, <laughs> Sorry. Actually, no, that's no, no, a no, great... don't apologize. I think no, 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 no. Lana actually had a great segue because of alternative games. What's been happening in Twine in 2014? Because I s- kind of stopped paying attention this year. Because that, hey, you, you got a New York Times feature based on it this time. Yeah. Well, I suppose the single most well-known Twine game that kind of came to prominence this year, not that it was made this year, was Depression Quest, Yeah, which is sort of what kicks off the Twine article in the New York Times by uh, Laura Hudson, was it? 
Yeah, which irony of ironies, right? That was the game that pushed Twine and further into the mainstream. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was um, a complicated article, I think. Because, I mean, it's it's trying to give credence to this whole area of, of game creation that is a space, like, dom- dominated largely by marginalized people, women, queer people. People of color. People of color. It's And it's it's especially a space for people who have not had the opportunity to go through game development um, and to learn those skills through the appropriate channels. So it's like a gateway for a lot mm-hmm. of people, which is a really important, interesting thing to exist. But... Like, I guess the thing that kind of bugged me of the article is it's still only focused on this handful, this sliver of luminaries. And I don't blame the people in the article that were mentioned per se, nor do I actually really, I don't want to, I don't want to throw Laura Hudson under the bus either, because I don't think that was all her decision. No, I think she got quite heavily edited. Um, Yeah, I think that was editorial. Mm -hmm. No, it wasn't her fault. But I'm a little bit worried when these things start to get momentum that they become kind of reduced into the most digestible forum, and so you start creating, you know, like in, in indie, we have this problem with indie as a brand where you have it being led primarily by boy geniuses, who are, which is something Liz Ryerson has talked about, who are, in effect, not that much different from the, the AAA auteurs, the Ken Levines of the world, in terms of the audiences that they command, and in some cases, the profits, that the, the, how lucrative it is for them. This is the kind um, of indie, indie game, the movie effect, hasn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've actually been wondering about that because, like, indie speaks to a certain sphere, but the sphere of alternative games seems almost like it could be described like the itchio sphere. Yeah. I mean, there's. I, I think indie community is a misnomer. I don't think there's such thing. I think there are various indie communities. A lot of them are local or regional. Either it's the same kind of thing with games writing and game crit. It's not just one big contrary to popular belief. No, it's, it's not, not one just, monolith. It's not, just, it's not just one big circle jerk. You know, there's loads of different groups of people that, you know... Yeah, and not everyone gets along. With, some, of don't. some of which can't... Yeah, some of which can't even stand each other. Yeah. yeah. I yeah, mean, we might... typical, actually, of a community. Yeah, what's what you would expect. Um, <laughs> I mean, you know, I not, think... We all respect no, each other, basically, I think. And we are, we're all basically kind of on the same sort of page and that we want to improve games criticism and we want to... To be able to talk about certain ideas, but that doesn't mean we all agree or all get along all the time. Or as Alan put it at one point, we can't even agree on whether it's one word or two. Yeah, exactly. I, I can agree that it's one word. It's your it's your fault for not agreeing. <laughs> right. well, I've got it right. Does anyone here spell words. it with two words? In that case, get out. Anyone who spells Bye. it with a hyphen can get out of my house. Who spells it with a hyphen? People who sure. can't decide. <laughs> Pick a Flip side. Flip-floppers spell out with a hyphen. <laughs> I want no quarter with them. There's always so, there's always somebody that writes for 5 out of 10 and complains about the, the video game is one word rule, and I always make sure to send them a screenshot whenever I did find and replace in Word. There's uh, nothing I enjoy more. <laughs> I wonder, I wonder as, as a troll when I start to actually, because I started a little bit of funding to put out an arts magazine eventually, so I'm thinking just as a sort of troll to demand it be written in Canadian English, which is a real, it's a, that's a, that's a real uh, mix of things. It's a it's a weird mix of American modifications and British spellings. Yeah, it's basically British spellings, but you use so many Zs that I feel. Yeah, we use a lot of we use a lot, but but <laughs> S's are also considered appropriate. Like you can do one or the other. So it's actually it's it's, it's totally inconsistent, and you just sort of have to know. So it's an English that can't make up its mind either. Yeah. 
yeah. <laughs> and I'm going, I might demand that my magazine is the one games magazine written purely in Canadian English. Well, considering you're not even the, the only Canadian with a zine, I'd say no. you'd be in pretty good company. But a lot of Canadians settle on American English to be as palatable as possible. Which is funny for me because I grew up very close to the Canadian border, and as protest of my Americanness, I grew up writing in what I believed to be Canadian English, which was mostly British English. I mean, you can write in strictly British English, and it'll be... Con- We're getting so off topic, but... It- <laughs> uh, I, I don't even know. It's interesting, though. No, I, think, I, think it's, I think it's good to ha- that people have individual identities, and that it, like, yeah. a lot of, on, especially on ri- online writing, does tend to be American English dominated. The only reason mm-hmm. that we do 5 out of 10 in British English is for consistency. I had originally said, do whatever dialect you like, and then people like uh, Jen Frank and Roland Kaiser were like, ah, ah, that's just maddlingly inconsistent. So then we just decided, well, we're based in Britain, so we'll do British English. And I think like yeah. there's, there's nothing. I, if you, I wholeheartedly endorse your Canadian English publication. I think that's a really, yeah. I guess, a really good idea to acknowledge and that it, there there are other dialects out there. Yeah, and it's it's sort of important for me also because as a francophone correspondent, this isn't. I guess we are making this about games again. Yay! Um, Yay. As, Yay. A, as a francophone correspondent. I've only been able to find a handful of actual French blogs about games. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's really hard. Them, most French developers, especially French Canadian developers, don't write in French. They write in English to have as much, and it's, it tells you something about sort of the Anglo-centrism. It's the same thing with German that I've found. That quite a lot of the uh, the German writers will either be bilingual, as video game tourism is, or be exclusively in English. Yeah. Yeah, well, like, I suppose, like, Haywire would be one of them. And, I mean, Joe, Joe Keller writes everything in English. Um, yeah, well, and, well, not everything in English, but he writes all of the things it is that I have read in English. And it, it's actually, there's a bit of a German game zine scene, though. There yeah, is. There's, there's a bit of a French developer scene that I think is really interesting I've been trying to follow, uh, with, like, people like Titouan Millet and Alexandre Lejeune. And there are a few others that I found, too, that are really interesting, and they're all doing really cool things together. But when they write, when they put up blog posts, like 90% of the time they're English. The ones that I've been able to find are generally French, as in from France. The Canadian ones are usually, you know, an offhand at a convention or like a lecture series that somebody did in French. But for the most part, it's English. And it just it tells you there is a particular kind of linguistic and cultural bias in, in video games that maybe informs some of the ideologies that are present. Um, Rami Ismail actually wrote a really good blog post about that a few uh, months back, was it? Mm. But no, he was talking about how like the extreme bias, not just of English, but the Latin al- alphabet when you get into any sort of technology space. Yeah, and yeah. how much that completely just rules out a huge portion of the human race just by default from the conversation. Yeah, no, that's I remember that he was talking about Arabic, I think, in particular. Mm-hmm. And he was talking about how it but the the way that because the language is not read the same way and a lot of translators and like a lot of language formats that are just not written to actually like it's like obviously this was not written by like a primary speaker of this language mm-hmm. a, and they clearly didn't care when they made it to check right now that's the funniest thing right like all these AAA games that you know put all of this authenticity into the, like what the firing rate of their guns or whatever but can't you know be ours to tell the difference between one you know middle eastern language and another when they have like these huge sets and full background writing 
Yeah, so I mean, I, I, I am actually really interested in bringing in a, a greater diversity of linguistics, of of ideologies, because I'm, I'm really adamant about, you know, if you want to understand a culture, learn some of the language. Language sure. will tell you a lot about what the culture is and what it thinks. And to bring some of that into games, to bring some of that, maybe implicate that more into some of the design ideologies as well. Some of the things that are typical of the language structures of languages that are, are not as common as English in game spheres might be interesting to see how those translate into things like design. Oh, that's a whole other thing. By the way, my favorite Twine game from 2014 <laughs> was Cat Petting Simulator by Neon Gray. Oh yeah, I saw that one. That was cool. It was it was really adorable. I have not managed to finish because the time when I was playing it, halfway through, my actual cat started soliciting attention. So obviously, if I had ignored that, I would just be a terrible cat guardian in general. But I have to say it's a very authentic experience. So there we go. That's, that's 2014 in Twine, right? There was the cat petting simulator. That's totally not representative of all. But I think I think my I haven't actually played it yet, but I'm hoping to do so when I'm on my holidays. But um, I think my favorite Twine game is going to be Terror Board to Speedwell, which I've read yes. quite a lot about, and it sounds pretty cool. Yeah, I just I just bought that. About from this year. And uh, that was yeah, they uh, had uh, JV Gwaltney on the. Uh, Justice Points podcast recently to talk about that, and that's how I heard about it as well. They were, what was the term? Oh, Danielle Riendo was talking about it on Idle Thumbs mm. a few weeks back. Yeah, no, it's, um, let's see, how did they describe it? Um, I think this actually might have been how Danielle was talking about it, like the best alien game that isn't in the Alien franchise. That sounds like her. Mm. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> I think my, my favorite Twine game of this year was The Uncle Who Works for Nintendo. Oh, I haven't played that yet. It's so good. I can't gush enough about it. I did a well, Zelani and I did a podcast where we talked about it a bit Ooh, for like yeah. for like twenty minutes or something. But no, I, I I adore this game. I think it's fantastic, and people need to play it. It's, it's wonderful. Oh my god, I'm so happy that, when I think about it. That will go <laughs> onto my list for games I have to play on my netbook when I'm you know stuck with the relatives this holiday season. <laughs> spread the Christmas cheer by locking yourself in a room and playing some video games. <laughs> so, so hold on. That so was cat petting simulator. <laughs> Joe, what's ridiculous is that there's a cat that hangs. There's a cat that hangs out at my mum's house, and instead of going and actually petting that cat, I'm going to be indoors playing cat petting simulator. And my uncle works for. You can find them in the doobly-doo down below. Oh, in the show notes? Yep. You can find them in my notebook right now. That won't won't help you, but you can find them there. If you happen to be, you know, looking over Alan's shoulder as you're listening to this podcast, you could probably see it in his notebook. I totally just looked behind me. I was like... (laughs) (laughs) Looking behind me is a cupboard, and I still look behind me. (laughs) What's in the cupboard, Alan? The uncle that works for Nintendo. Ah! (laughs) R. Kelly. What I like about oh, R. Kelly. R. R. Kelly is the closet, man. Yeah. Get it right. I don't know what his Britishisms for cupboard are. Pretty sure a cupboard is a cupboard, a cupboard. man. <laughs> uh, but what I, I do like about the Uncle Works for Nintendo, I won't go into too much, but what I like about it as a twine game, it's actually it's a horror game and it's genuinely really scary as a, as a piece of, what you might say, like a literary horror in the sense that, you know, Light on, it has certain visuals that are very evocative and very, like, suggestive. Um, 
But what's scary about it is because it's focusing mainly on Twine and, and Twine's kind of internal mechanics, it's more what you don't see and more what's suggested, and there aren't, like, a ton of jump scares or anything like that. It's not there just to shock you. It's actually, like, there's a genuine terror. There's, like, it builds up dread in this really interesting way. It's a real triumph in terms of what Twine can do. Are you literally trying not to spoil this? Yeah. Like, okay, okay. Well, if I just told you, it wouldn't be so scary. All I do know is don't be too genre-savvy because it will punish you for it. Yeah. Yeah, it it, uh, it plays with a lot of twine the, the the expectations twine builds up with its syntax in terms of some passages and, and macros and things like that. It'll even sort of use like uh, twine errors as part of the game in a really interesting way. Right. So it's so. been lovely speaking to you. I'm going to go play that game. So uh, bye, <laughs> Alan. Get back here. Yeah. <laughs> fine, fine. What am I Move, paying you here. for? <laughs> Moving forward to another to another topic. From a few years ago, the Kickstarter booms began with the advent of, du- of the Double Fine Adventure game, and a lot of those have started coming to roost, as in coming out. I believe, Alan, you said there's a spreadsheet somewhere that actually shows... Yeah, there, that- there is a, there's a big spreadsheet, and it sort of says, you know, did the game its funding target, and did it... it, it so you can either see, you know, released on time, released behind schedule, or, you know, completely collapsed, and... I had thought that most of them would have collapsed, but actually most of them are either coming out or have been delayed because that's what happens in life. But they're, you, they, these games are actually getting playable alphas and demos and mm-hmm. things, and they're not, um, they, they, are, they do actually exist. They're not vaporware. So yeah, like I, I've always been a bit kind of doom and gloom about Kickstarter, but mainly because I just couldn't fund every interesting game that I, I wanted to play. But um, no, I think, it's, I think it's done pretty well. I mean, it's been going for a few years now, and People still still seem to get behind this campaign, which I think is really good. I mean, the latest one was... Not to the same degree. Well, well, I mean, that that Dragon Cancer got funded recently, and it's above its target, so, you know. But it's like, there's a difference between, like, oh, we ask ask for $100,000, we get $3.3 million... And asking for seventy five thousand, getting eighty three. Mm-hmm. That was that that was that was a, a one off thing, and you could argue that Double Fine probably you know they they might not have needed to do that to get that game funded because even though well no it wasn't just a one off thing that's why I called it the boom Wasteland two was several time factors higher and then you you got uh, the Torment game you got Shadowrun Returns oh, yeah, the, all these the Obsidian ones that's uh, called yeah. Killer Pillars of Eternity yeah. Yeah, all, they were all way overfunded, and they started to and they started that trend of like what are they what is it called uh, stretch goals? Uh, okay, and we're not getting that as much. We're not getting people asking as much anymore, and those who do ask are tending not to make their target goals. There was the there was the potato salad Kickstarter this year. Uh, it, <laughs> it, it, it 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 greatly outstripped its goal. <laughs> what was it? Ten dollars? It was one dollar. I think it was. I think it was like a kind of cynical penny arcade style thing. Yeah, where, you know, it the, really was. Immediately get funded. Yeah. It was really, yeah. really frustrating because I think that was around yeah, was. the time when we were uh, trying to push through critical distances funding quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's kind of irritating that you know you're trying to. I mean, if I'm going to be you know a bit naggy about critical distances finances here for a second, it's kind of irritating when you're doing this thing that's been going for five years and yada yada yada. And here's this dude. He just makes this funny potato salad thing and gets however many thousands of billions of dollars. I mean, that, that tells you something about the internet and virality or digestibility, no pun intended. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, but um, it's easy. No, it's intended. 
Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it's, you know, it's easy to like a joke about potato salad, especially from somebody that people, like a kind of person that people find kind of like they can identify with and that that's kind of comforting. It's easy to like that kind of thing. But if you're at, you're asking people to care about something where you put in a lot of work and, you know, you're asking them to put in the work of actually engaging with you and having some intellectual rigor and caring about something that's not directly in front of them and not super viral. And a lot of people don't have the attention for that. And that's really unfortunate. Like, I mean, I totally understand where you're coming from because it took me like a year to get to a point in Patreon where I'm like, I'm getting like a full-time paycheck and like, I'm over the moon that I can actually write about games in a way that's profitable. I'm not even wealthy. I can just survive. And, you know, all I had to do was make a goddamn potato salad. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I guess, like, in a way you kind of have to you have to play the game a bit. Like, it's easy enough for people just to throw somebody a dollar because they made them laugh on a Kickstarter, and there's a big difference yeah. between that and, and somebody giving you or Critical Distance $1 a month. I mean, my kind of take on the current... Patreon funding for for both you, Lan, as an individual, and for Critical Distances. I think that the, the fact that we've made these goals, we should be really, really proud of that. I think it's really very true. Yeah, I think it's really, it's really, really awesome. That well, like I said, I'm over the moon. Like yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. No, I mean, since we're talking about Patreon now, I guess we should, you know, acknowledge the fact that yes, we made at Critical Distance, we made our two thousand dollar funding goal, which makes me a full time employee of critical distance and it could not have happened without you know all the generous support of all the people who are listening to this and probably many more because not many people listen to our podcast but pour yourself a drink (laughs) 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 pour one over here i've got my glass raised for you oh that's i mean first of all because uh obvious bias but you know i think critical distance pretty is pretty important so I'm glad to see that it's actually getting funding. And for my speaking for myself, I mean, I'm not upset that I'm finally making money. Uh, I guess I'm just sort of kind of looking retrospectively at like what it took to get there. And I mean, in terms of playing the game, I did play the game for a while, for a few years before I decided, well, this isn't really, you know, I'm impoverishing myself. I can't keep doing things for exposure at this point as a professional. Uh, I, not 19 anymore and i need money to live so you know amazingly enough it's it reminds me of um of jen frank's piece about patreon and about sort of like one of the final pieces that was on like her blog where she wrote about you know that patreon if you have a certain kind of following and i'm not saying that patreon is really something that can can replace like the more obvious class divides i think it actually just makes them like more visible but the thing is like if you if you have played the game and you have done the exposure stuff and but you're still not getting hired because of identity issues or you know whatever like if you can actually make money off of your fans writing especially in this particular niche industry it's not competitive there's no point to to trying to getting those positions in those in, in certain high ranking places because it's for, it's not any more stable, and what you're offered pales in comparison to what you can make on your own. Then you need to get the exposure in the first place to actually get people to notice you in order to get funding. For yeah, yourself. That's, that's the catch twenty two. That, that's the hard part. Is that Jen Frank 
has a very successful Patreon, but she also came the back of uh, one nine, particularly. Nine years. Yeah, yeah, so she's been there for a long time, and she had a big audience, and it's it's very different for somebody kind of coming out of nowhere, you know. I mean, yeah, even... and I was there, I was there for four years before, yeah. and I found that I found that intolerable. So no, nine no, years. Yeah. yeah. No. Um. I think actually, I'm pretty sure all of us have a story like that. You know, yeah. I remember my very first editor when I just started game blogging for free, of course, saying it's like I need to do my time as a free writer before I do anything that's for paid work. And, you know, yeah, I, I guess I can see the point of that. Yeah, sure. But also that takes place within the sort of like meritocratic system that biases itself in favor of a particular sort of young laborer. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I think we're seeing, you know, I mean, if. 2014 could be said to be a watershed moment for anything besides what happened in August. I guess it could also be said to be a watershed moment of, you know, this is us roundly identifying the failure of games writing as like a traditional capitalist, you know, sort of like industry that that one can actually make some sort of like bootstrappy living out of. You have to come up with some sort of alternative means or else you're just wasting your time. Yeah. Yeah, I think like uh, Maddie Myers had a really good uh, alter conf talk about this, where she talked about you know uh, journalism, games journalism as a business. It was really, really, really good talk, and she basically said that like what the the unfortunate thing about something like Patreon, and she's somebody who actually did work for traditional newspapers like at the Boston Phoenix for a really long time. Um, the unfortunate thing about Patreon is it takes people who are supposed to be colleagues and it turns them into direct competitors. And but the problem, the other side of that is that uh, the games. Journal like the the press itself does not provide things like job security or benefits. No. Things that honestly, I mean, I'm gonna say something real radical right now. I think we should unionize. I think there should be a, a writer's guild, and I think there needs to be uh, an uprising of developers' unions as well. I think developer unions would have to come first before the writers' unions ever had a chance. Yeah, there's already think... there's already a union in the UK. Though you've already got the National Union of, of Journalists. Um, it's just that not everyone is, is signed up to it. And actually, I went to a, ugh, a couple of years ago now, there was a talk about sort of getting into games journalism, which is actually one of the most depressing nights of my life, come to think about it, because they all yeah. just said, yeah, we've done really well, and you probably won't, but uh, good luck, have fun. Uh, yeah. But um, but no, it, there is, like, if you're not getting paid, like, well, it's it's things like the NUJ, I'll say something like, you should be getting paid, like, 25p a word. That's just me pulling a number out of my hat. But mm-hmm. how much do you normally get paid? About three pence a word. So like there, the difference between Dang. what what professional like that that's not the that's not the exact numbers, but the difference between what games writers actually get paid and what professional journalists perceive themselves as needing to earn in order to actually live are it's a massive yeah. gulf. Yeah, it's not even yeah. it's not even close. It's not even clear. And I, I think it's widening, job. honestly. Mm-hmm. I did a writing job for several months, almost a year. Where it was, the pay was thirty dollars a month. Oh, Full time. Uh, it, the way it ended up, it, probably not. But it was fi- at least five articles every day. No, I remember that. Every now. weekday. That was that. I remember you talking about that and how completely unjust and fucked up it sounded. Yeah, no. It's and not. I still need. But the thing is, that money helped pay off my, my monthly student loan debt. So yeah, yeah. it's not like <laughs> minor in deferment. Well, they, they know they. I mean, it's it's knowing. It's gone now. I'm done. It's paid off. Well, congratulations! Okay. You're awesome. one of very few. Uh, but yeah, I know. I, I definitely think that there there needs to be some kind of writers guild or union 
I, I definitely think that there needs to be more creative unions within video games or at least partnering with other creative unions um, that have a framework for this kind of thing. There needs to be things like collective bargaining. We just don't have that. Uh, and that's why we're res- we resort, especially marginalized people who have additional problems getting hired, uh, we resort to things like crowdfunding because we're not collectivizing. Um, I think a lot of people are, are too overworked and too tired and too afraid. And the, we also feel, and rightly so, that the games press just does not have our back anyway. So why would you bother? I know it also do- it also kind of hurts that writing is sort of being phased out as a as a as an industry that even the money yeah. money is directed towards because it's been said by numerous sources if you're not already in video you're done. You're mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, I think like uh, I know we've gone off on the the, the mother of all tangents. <laughs> um, <laughs> like the only thing the only thing I would say is like the other problem with that is like if you want to unionize, great, okay, that that makes sense, right? But there's always going to be somebody who's like. Not exactly a scab, but there's somebody who will always work for less than you. And part of the reason for that is because it's not just that people write for free to get into the industry and say it as expected. That's, that's actually seen as like a point of honor that you, you, would, you would write without it getting paid. The writing just for the love of the game oh, is actually something to be really I, I, proud of. And yeah. that's, the, that's the thing that's really, really bizarre. Yeah, that's a really fucked up neoliberal attitude it's, towards It's even worse than that. Anyone who is an actual writer, like within themselves, an actual writer has to do it regardless. It's just something you have to do. Whether or not you publish it and just because you're trying to hold to that line where I only publish if I get paid, but you still have to write it. People are going to be like that no matter what if they are, in fact, a writer. And Mm -hmm. not getting paid for it just further incentivizes that divide. We have an entire rationale here, you know, coming from this, you know, this extreme right that's sort of like become very vocal in the last few months that said that any sort of like non-explicitly enthusiast kind of involvement in video games is somehow tarnished and you know sinister and wrong and the very idea that that someone would have to make a living off of doing this uh, is inconceivable not just you know to these very vocal opponents to everything that we're doing here but I think to a large extent, just everyone who even looks at the industry, because that's the thing. It's like not only is there always someone younger or or me, more eager to replace you for something like a you know a games writing gig, you know the idea that they would do it for free, even if you would do it for barely above free. I mean, the games industry by and large is I think is relying on that, and as long as we sort of like treat writing about games as being a sort of capitalist exercise, that's mm-hmm. not going to change. No. Um, Whatever you said, inconceivable. I was just thinking, game, games writing career for free. You keep using that word. I don't think it means what you think it means. <laughs> yeah, well, it's a little unsustainable to keep asking people to perform labor and then not pay them. <laughs> so that... what? What The original point was Kickstarter. Yeah. <laughs> and we moved to Patreon. Uh, yeah. Actually, but... Th- uh, I guess in the larger community, both Chris and Alan had talks at Critical Proximity. That's right. Again, another thing that seems like it just happened like ages ago, as opposed to what, like nine months ago. It's the should I call it the first ever critical proximity conference or? Well, it's the first over. Yeah, I mean, I think it, you could also probably not be too far wrong to say that it was like the first conference devoted specifically to games criticism and mm-hmm. games blogging. That wasn't also like a trade show. Yeah, I mean, it was also. It was. I mean, we used. The, the game developers conferences space 
Mm-hmm. But as far as I know, that was a completely voluntary transaction. That was, you know, it was not some sort of business deal. They just heard that we were doing this and offered up their space. So thank you, GDC, for that. Oh, that's nice of them. It was also the days, like the two days before. It was the day before the GDC. Yeah. But yeah, no, Alan and I uh, both presented there. Alan submitted a video, which is hilarious. An amazing. Uh, hold on, hold nice on. You're going report, robot. Which, you know, is automatically tenter points in my book. Oh, Chris, no. you're going robot is it better on now? us. Yeah, you yeah. Is it better now? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, take it, take it okay. from the top. I'm going to give it a few more yeah. seconds. Yeah. Hello and welcome uh, to the 2014 so yes. Critical District. <laughs> <laughs> 2014, I the year you, that Alan. we can't win. We just can't win. I hate you, Alan. So. <laughs> so yes, Alan and I both presented at the Critical Proximity Conference in March, which was held uh, in a room at the Game Developers Conference in San Francisco. Alan sent in a video, which was uh, displayed, and I was there to give a live chat, and both were pretty well received. Yeah, oh. I, it was it was it was weird because like well, I was sitting at home in my in my shorts with a can of Guinness and a beautiful summer's evening in the UK. You know, and I, I, I seem to spend all my time drinking, but honestly, there are days when I don't. Um, but I was really nervous about that talk, and I don't know why, because it was pre-recorded. There was nothing I could do, even if I wanted to stop it and launch a missile towards the United States. <laughs> I couldn't have stopped that talk, you know, but it was still like, and I remember um, they, like it, it kind of came on. And if you haven't seen it, I'm sure our gracious host will put a link in the show notes. But um, I kind of started off just talking, and, and people were kind of vaguely paying attention. And I had a live webcam feed, so I could see it. I could watch people watching it. And um, and then as soon as the Jurassic Park theme tune kicked in, I saw everybody close their close their laptops. I was like, yes, <laughs> they're, they're actually paying attention. They're actually paying attention. So it was no, it was really good. And I I really enjoyed it. And um, I mean, one of the other things I wanted to say, and we, we kind of come back to crit procs, but. There's another series of talks that's now started up in London called Video Brains, uh, run by my friend Jake Tucker, and they run every month in London. There's a couple of behind-the-scenes schemes involving that in critical proximity, because there's obviously a bit of a lineup there, you know, they, they, they match up. But I've now done a couple of talks live at um, the first one in September, and I'm actually doing one tomorrow. Um, and all those talks are on YouTube, so um, even if you can't make it, you know, if you can't really justify the cost of a flight from... Uh, from America all the way to London to go to the pub. Uh, that's your problem, not mine. Um, you know, you can still catch all those talks. And it's the same thing with uh, Critical Proximity. All those talks are available online. Yeah. Um, which I'm actually very grateful to be able to watch the whole thing off of Twitch from my No, it was, it was really amazing. Yeah. It was a stroke of genius on Zoya's part to make sure that all of that was set up from the get-go and all of that is like a continued record. Of course, you know, then months later when everything that started happening, and I keep on dancing around this. Yeah, at some point, before August. Before August. Yeah. At some point, you know what? I don't want to talk about Gamergate. I really don't. I don't think anybody wants to. We just sort of skirted around mm. it the entire time. We're at some point we're going to have to, but you know what? No. But again, it's like that too was like turned out to be a liability for us later on. It seemed like because once that was archived, of course, they found. You know, the videos later on, it's just like, they're talking about Marxism in conjunction with video games. Yeah. We need to burn them. I don't actually remember that talk. I, I don't actually think any of us spoke very explicitly about Marxism. I know that I brought him up by name. 
in my talk, but it was actually sort of like an offhand reference because what I was talking about was curation as a practice and how curation as a practice, like just by dint of doing curation, you're leaving other people out. And if you're not very conscious about what you're doing, or even if you are, what you're doing is you're biasing toward people, usually within your own in-group or within your own class. And it becomes a class tool by which to just delineate, like, this is acceptable culture, this is unacceptable culture. And it's yeah. something that anyone who, like, does any sort of curation, whether you're making a class syllabus or what we do at Critical Distance with the roundups, you have to be very conscious of that. And so my talk was about that. And funnily enough, I think that was one of the few that didn't really blow up with Gamer Gators. But I know that Alex Lifshitz, one where he uh, destroys uh, a Grand Theft Auto V disc, which was amazing, by the way, I was one of the people who cheered that on, um, was completely misread by uh, Gamer Gators as being like an act of book burning, because, which was funny, because his very talk was about how meaningless the Grand Theft Auto disc was as a work, that it's mm-hmm. just containing data that is endlessly reproducible, that it doesn't actually affect or alter or change Grand Theft Auto at all. Yeah, you don't need but, the disc to play the game. Yep, once you install it, it's uh, gone, or you could just like yeah. download it from uh, from the store or whatever. It's like it's 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 meaningless talking about even things like book burning. I mean, I'm still like really upset at the very idea of book burning. Obviously, especially because of its connotations. But uh-huh. the book burning nowadays is not really the sort of, like, significant act of destruction that it was when we associate it with, like, in that time period, especially with Nazism. But, right. Yeah, uh, people think of it as a symbolic act when it was an actual rep- repressive tactic. It was a repressive tactic of a certain, not just a certain set of ideologies, but also a, a, a very specific set of people whose ideas and whose, whose lives were being erased in a very literal sense. It also stemmed into a larger talk and ideology of anti-intellectualism yeah. that the Nazis stood for. There's actually a lot of, <laughs> believe it or not, a lot of the anti-intellectual sentiment coincides really, really neatly with the anti-Semitism. Yes, yeah, funny that. Funny that. And actually, what's really interesting, if we're going to get into this now... It's called, yes, is it getting are. pretty fucking dark, guys? Is it getting pretty fucking dark? <laughs> After this, we'll just clear the air and just light the match and get it out of here once and for all. Scorch it. Just scorch the earth and salt it and walk away. Yes. Um, but Potential trigger warnings for you know what. Um, we'll, we'll get to that in a second. Well, I mean, I was, just the uh, a quick uh, primer, I guess, is um, one of the, the Nazis actually kind of coined the term cultural Marxist as a way of discrediting... Bolsheviks and Jews, particularly intellectual Jews, many of whom like fled to the United States and other places when they were exiled if they weren't killed. In fact, uh, Marc Chagall wrote this really beautiful poem uh, dedicated to about 80 Jewish artists who were murdered by the Nazis and their work suppressed while he was in exile. And so the whole the whole point of that of that kind of anti-intellectualism towards Jews in particular was to suppress and also to delegitimize the intellectual work done by those particular individuals, many of whom were talking about things like women's liberation, and they were talking about things like uh, sexual variance and gender variance, and they were talking about things like class inequality, and they were bringing that stuff in and talking about how that's represented through media landscapes. So, yeah, that was actually something that was particularly harmful to Nazi 
ideology, so of course that was that was suppressed. Anti-intellectualism was seen as well, intellectualism of the kind, the kind of progressive style, the more modernist style of the Frankfurt School was considered, what did they call it, Antarktikunst? Degenerate art? Mm. It was considered degenerate. Yeah. It was considered immoral to the Nazi way of life. So that really was a real suppression of art and ideas. That was serious censorship. That was people being murdered for what they believed. Contrast with someone trying to break a Grand Theft Auto disc on a stage, and not even really succeeding because they're so bendable that he ended up just kind of like folding it into quarters. Yeah. But oh, book birding, ooh, and ooh. proximity sounds a lot like critical distance, so they must be the same thing, ooh. We're not. Yeah. I, I'm sure no one is going to listen to this who is part of that whole brigade, but we're not. Sorry. I love oh. Zoya Street and everything that he does, but critical proximity and critical distance are not the same thing. No. They're just, they're just cutely named. <laughs> Actually, sort of getting back to what we were talking about before a bit, with, with Patreon, what I like about... What I, what I, well, I mean, there's something that... There's a nice dovetail here. Because what I like about... What I like about something like critical proximity existing, and then we also have little kind of nascent things like Indie 3. We have all these alternative games journals and presses that are starting to kind of spring up that are being crowd-sustained or they're being sustained by su- subscriptions or whatever. Um is, you know, there's a kind of a recognition if you would play, like, Squinky's Queen's Quest. Mm-hmm. There's a bit of a recognition that the traditional sort of domain of, like, the games industry and press and all of those, like, different intersecting, interlocking parts are not really the place you want to be if you're trying to, like, bring games into some kind of uh, cultural acceptance or you're trying to bring them into some kind of uh, legitimacy or you're just trying to sort of integrate them into the wider spectrum of art and art criticism, those aren't really, like, the places that are going to help you. And they're definitely not the places if you want to actually, like, create a stable community and a stable economy for those things. They're very, very uneven in terms of how wealth is distributed in that particular kind of circle. And it's, it's not helped by certain fantasies of meritocracy and of what's considered an appropriate game or an appropriate developer or whatever. Like, I guess I see it as another kind of, like, little silver lining. It's actually a little inspiring that there's all this stuff going on that people are just doing independently to try to create their own economy away from those things. Like, one of the things I like about that Dragon Cancer getting funding and getting press is it just reminds me of what Lee Alexander said, that, you know, these these people who are, like, super hard into games and, like, that's their whole identity, those, those people don't have to be our audience. And... I, I can tell you from experience, every single time I talk to somebody who isn't a games person about the games I think are interesting and I show it those games to people, they're genuinely surprised and they all have positive reactions. Yeah. Uh, it's always, you know, this is really cool. I would actually like to engage with this. This is interesting. I like this. And if you want to have that, if you want to reach out to people, you have to kind of get your head out of the sand of games culture and you have to sort of reach out outwards to the rest of the world, which I guess is a nice way of dovetailing into that whole, you know, what have we learned this year? What have we found this year that isn't about games? And that's why, even though I find it very sad, especially from a curatorial standpoint, that, you know, I'm looking over the past few months and seeing, look at all these voices that we've already lost. Look at all these people who are afraid and will never be secure again and just putting out their thoughts on the wide open internet that feel that they have to lock things down or caveat things or whatever, even though I mourn all of that, I'm also a little bit optimistic 
about what's going to come next. Because if everything that's happened since August has sort of created like the sort of miniature exodus away from what we would consider like maybe semi-mainstream games writing, what's going yeah. to come out of this in the end will probably be better and healthier for all of us. Yeah, and it'll be, I think it'll be more centered in talking about games as, you know, not just as commodities, as expressive material. It'll be more interested in engaging them and connecting them with the rest of the world. We've learned a lesson about what happens when you get way too involved with games. It's not pretty. No. And so I think that's really valuable. We learned this the hard way, and to be honest with you, because these flare-ups have happened every so often for the past few years, this isn't terribly surprising, but it does kind of hit home. You know, It does make you realize, yeah, that it is really important if you want to save games as a medium to get them the hell out of the industry. So, uh, Eric, I think it's time. Yeah. We deliberated over whether or not to discuss Gamergate, but frankly, there are better places that talk about it more in depth, more knowledgeable, and from a place that they need to discuss it. We're a criticism and curatorial site. We can point you to those places. We can direct you to better places, but quite frankly, this is not a conversation we feel adept or frankly are willing to have as important and as significant as it was for 2014. So in that respect, we are going to have uh, one minute of silence to remember all the friends, colleagues, and others who were harmed, damaged, or pushed out by the abuse and pain that was caused over the past few months. Thank you very much. Well, I'm glad you. you were keeping time. I was worried nobody. Yeah. Could <laughs> uh, I suggest? Definitely. How about we take like a five-minute break because we've been doing this for two hours now. Just like get up, stretch our legs, and then sort of just like regroup and head back into the latter half oh, of all of this. Oh, okay, oh. okay. I'm so let's just fine. like let's just reset for a second, and then with renewed happiness and enthusiasm, we can get into the latter part of this. Okay. Okay. Thanks, guys.
And now on to lighter news. They decided to excavate E.T. from the, the Arizona, de- the New Mexico desert. Yeah, desert for E.T. Right. Couldn't they just left this corpse alone? And that was in what, July? Again, it, you know, it seems like it happened in another year. I mean, and you know what? Considering the timing, considering what all that happened and what started happening soon after the excavation, I wonder if it wasn't sort of like uncovering the Ark of the Covenant. It's just like we, we unearthed E.T. and then all hell broke loose. But Major Nelson's face isn't melted, so maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> I I really don't know what to say. Although it was like one of those interesting community experiences because you saw like all the images of like the excavators and the people with shovels and them holding it up for the camera, coming over Twitter, and then it endlessly retweeted. Mm-hmm. And then of course you get like the Desi, the Davy Downer saying, "Why this wasn't a rumor." We have, like, the, the receipts to the people who buried it. They were permits for this. Yeah. It, it wasn't a myth. There was, like, a, there was a, a story that I found about this, you know, kind of genteel old gentleman who was just talking about, very nonchalantly, about how he was responsible for, like, pour, like, like digging the ditch and pouring on the concrete. And he's just like, yeah, it really wasn't that big a deal. They just needed to get rid of it. See, like, this this just, you know, reinstates my point that, like, it should not have been done, and now that it has been done, we have to contend with the consequences. Yeah. The satanic consequences. <laughs> satanic consequences? It's just a really weird example of, like, the quasi-religious myth-making that goes on in, like, niche communities like this around consumer products. You just reminded me of another thing that we that we totally forgot happened, but has a similar idea of like the religious significance that came around it. Twitch plays Pokemon happened yeah, this year. Yeah, cool. Yeah. And it had its own like it like they had its what was it like Bird Jesus? Well, there was that, and there was also um, the Helix fossil. That because of like the time lag between when you input commands in Twitch and when the player would act them out that it ended up accidentally consulting the Helix fossil for advice uh, every time it went in battle. Mm-hmm. And so the, the, the myth became, or the, like the narrative, I should say, became that like the, the Helix fossil was a religious artifact. And I don't think there are any real adherents to the Helix fossil as a religion, but, you know. No, but, no. well, not, not outside Twitch plays Pokemon, no. but apparently they were taking it very seriously. They crafted... There was Bird Jesus, because apparently this one Pidgeot managed to fend off an entire series of Pokemon after the rest of the team had failed. Oh, my. So, so, why, did I I get the name wrong? No, no, I just, I'm just amazed at humanity, I guess. (laughs) I, I, I think, I don't know, I am more... I feel better about Twitch Plays Pokemon than about the E.T. excavation. Oh, yeah, no, I think it was actually, like, a genuinely interesting experiment. Mm-hmm. And it had a lot of really interesting community-building stuff that and, and coordination. It's fun to watch. I, I enjoyed Twitch Plays Pokemon. I cannot, Apparently... I, I cannot possibly imagine <laughs> taking a Pidgeot that seriously. <laughs> But what was what was amazing apparent is that there is a maze within the game that you have to like hit all the inputs correctly or you start all over. Oh man! So w- with the chaos delay that was going on, how they made it through that maze, they beat the game. 
that that's what baffles me. Because <laughs> I watched a few minutes of it, and it's this w- guy walking in a circle. How on earth did you beat this? Enough monkeys and enough typewriters. <laughs> uh, but that's what was keeping you from beating it, was the monkeys hitting the typewriters. Well, they, they coordinated. They actually found that, like, chaos wasn't working. Uh, you know, having people press B or start or whatever, just to troll or whatever. So they actually had to start setting up a little social contract, a little set of boundaries and rules. People were kind of on the honor system to follow because they all, at least the people who weren't trolling, they, they had a collective goal. Um, so they actually, believe it or not, they had to set up a, like a set of standards <laughs> um, in order what for was, that to be achieved, which was, you know, not pressing B all the damn time. What was what was interesting, though, is that they set that through democracy, mm. where you could actually, whether it would be done by democratic vote over a certain period of time of a few seconds, and whatever got the most votes would be the input that was taken, yeah. versus anarchy, which was whatever it will do the inputs in order it receives. But that caused, of all things, a schism. That's right. Between the audience. Yeah. It got really I, heated. <laughs> because everyone, because people would be voting for democracy versus anarchy, and... And wasn't there like a, a PBS Idea Channel episode about it? Like, like this is like this is the future of democracy right here, man. Is it? <laughs> oh God! I don't know. I don't know if it's the future of democracy, but I think it is a really interesting micro sociological experiment in community for building. Sure, for sure. You know, as as how societies form and how rules emerge in those societies as issues come up and how things sort of like because this was like a really hyper accelerated. Uh, it's like it's like watching a stop motion video of like a flower emerging, you know, like but watching a, a whole society kind of emerge in this little like micro chamber, and just seeing how things mutated and changed over time in response to certain specific needs, and how individuals acted within the group, um, how they conformed or not to the group dynamic was actually really interesting to watch, sure. and the fact that you even also had the emergence to explain some of the weirder elements of what was happening, sort of a quasi-religious element to it as well, was also really interesting. It's commented, but I really hope sociologists are just paying attention to this community. Yeah. No, they definitely are. I mean, <laughs> at least some are. PhD students somewhere is doing their dissertation on Twitch Plays Pokemon as we speak, looking yeah, immediately sure. at, the, at, at you right there, Bob. I don't know if your name's actually Bob, but I know what dissertation you're doing. <laughs> Do you really this is have basically to play all this Pokemon? Yes, yes, I do. It's important research. Yeah. <laughs> really hilarious. As soon as you turn eighteen, you turn eighteen, you get your first drink of alcohol, and you have your first swear. Hey, hey, it's uh, the, happens, the right? age you, of alcohol is twenty-one here. I don't know where it is in Canada. I know. Well, um, it's it it uh it it depends. It, it alternates by province. So in Quebec, it's eighteen. But in, like, Ontario, it's 19. Hmm. Figure. Yeah, we get to vote at 18 and then drink at 21. Yeah. Is that what you've learned this year? (laughs) (laughs) This year I learned... (laughs) This year I learned that Taylor Swift's new single goes really well with that aerobics video from, like, 1988. (laughs) I learned that I actually kind of like Taylor Swift when she's mad. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> her her rage makes her a more interesting artist. I hope she just doesn't go through a Britney Spears phase. No, I want Righteous Fury. I just don't want Shaved Head. No. 
Well, I mean, like as long as she some, can keep some, up. Somehow off the point here, folks. Yeah, we were talking about... Unfortunately, my, my Taylor Swift opinion is pretty much like my Kim Kardashian opinion. Oh, it exists? What's this thing over here instead? I'm not a really big fan of, like, Taylor Swift's most of her catalog. I'll say that. But Shake It Off is a pretty good song. It is a pretty good song. I, I wish that I hadn't gone and watched the official music video because, wow, appropriation of the yin Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. No, it really is bad. But the song's all right. Yeah. Do, I, I always wonder, do we blame the artist for this or the music video director? I think director? it really depends on how much uh, authorship yeah. one asserts of you. I mean, like, like, when Blurred Lines was a big thing, everyone, you know, pointed to... You know the the film like the the videos like female director is saying well well it's okay because it was a female director is like well no actually yeah. because Robin Thicke's ego is all over that thing it, I guess it depends quite an awful lot on individual circumstances some music videos it's very obvious like this is just you know a director you are the music video you are the music video industry's monkey now dance yeah it really it really does and especially after an artist kind of does it a few times like Katy Perry. And it just seems to be getting progressively worse every single time she does it. For sure, for sure. Like, eh, I'm going to say you probably having, you have a little agency when it comes to this here. Yeah, no, <laughs> the reverse side of that is, like, yeah. Nicki Minaj's videos, which just get more awesome each time. Seriously. So I want to be her Aww. so much. I don't know if I could ever be here, but she, I, everything about her is perfect. Well, not perfect. She has her moments where she's like, maybe you shouldn't have said that, but... Yeah, she's one of those people that I kind of wish made video games because I think oh, she'd be man. really good at it. A Nicki Minaj Maybe you could get a sequel to so sequel to yeah. Kim Kardashian then, Nicki Minaj Hollywood or something. Oh, like. hers would be so much better, and it would involve so many more penises. Oh my God, yes, naked <laughs> male chest and just so much objectification in general. Oh, yeah. Does anybody, anybody want to talk about um, video game? I'm sorry. Not that I don't want to talk about penises. Right don't, don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. Like, you know, if you want, if you really want to talk about penises, 2014, the okay. year of penises, you could not win. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we've talked about the ET excavation. I guess you know what yeah. is up on the next in the agenda is, and this is something that I propose. What have we gotten into, or? Picked up or rediscovered. Oh, I, thought we were, I thought we were already doing what? it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I thought, thought, we, I thought it. that was yours. We were? All right. I thought that was you, what you were talking well, about. Well, now we're really talking about it. We're talking about <laughs> what we picked up or got into in the year 2014 that had absolutely nothing to do with video games. For me, it was origami. Oh, I thought that was something you already did. I did used to do origami, but it was sort of like, especially back, we're talking like, you know, February when I, you know, closed up the rest of my commitments to Gamasutra and I was officially unemployed that I kind of really went hog wild with it and ended up, you know, buying a bunch of like different kinds of stocks of origami paper and just doing it endlessly. And that sort of segued into um, doing backer rewards for the Unwinnable Weekly Kickstarter where I folded all these origami cranes. I'm like, yeah, sure, no problem. And then it ended up being something like what, like 511 cranes and like six or 12 or something bottles of these little lucky star origami. And it's just like, yeah, I can now say that I, I have a very intimate working knowledge of different sorts of origami paperweight. I, I have one of these cranes on my shelf right now, and I yes, can vouch for the, the quality of your origami. It's good. Thank you. I got, a, I got a care package from Los Angeles. I got a nice Christmas card, and I got these Aww. 
his lychee sweets and his coffee sweets and some and some critical distance badges. You can put and you can put one. Five in, out you of can ten put, yeah, and five out of ten pins. You can put one in each eye and then you know <laughs> pretend you're like I don't know even more obsessed than you already are. It's great. Like one of like you're like the other mother from Coraline or something like that. Yeah. Oh, I yeah, thought you were making like, a, a Greek mythology reference. Because they're pin badges, you can just put the pin through your eyelid and it holds really well. It's true. It's true. Uh, okay. <laughs> that was alternative. Alternative. Actually, once I think about it, I've actually done quite a lot. I've discovered the joy of, of painting. I mean, I've always really liked paintings, but um, like Zolani has been running a lot of art criticism about paintings and uh, there's a up the just uh, like a like two blocks from my from my apartment there's an art gallery so I've been going sometimes by myself and sometimes with him to just like what, what we we went there and we we criticized everything until they kicked us out <laughs> we were just walking around looking at things and talking about them until they closed and so that's been really fun and I've just if you follow me at all then I've been retweeting in between, like, outrage rants, I've been <laughs> retweeting a lot of art just because I find it very soothing and interesting to look at. Uh, and I've been drawing a lot of inspiration from that and re- reading more reading more books and poetry, getting trying to get back into it because uh, I always really love those things, but I've been so not motivated to do things. And I try to get back into things that always, like, put me in a good mood. So getting back into I, literature has been really nice. Yeah. I've been watching a lot of films. I decided to back-to-back Alien and Aliens the other day, which was fun. I did that a few months ago for the first time yeah. ever. Had you not seen I, them before? No, I hadn't. It just never came up. And they were okay. Alien, <laughs> Alien, I think, is a triumph. Alien is a fantastic film. Aliens. Oh, come on. Aliens is fun. Aliens is fun. It's a fun movie. Aliens it's not, it's, not that it's good. totally like the exact opposite of everything yeah. that, that, that Scott set up, honestly. I mean, it's just like, I mean, if you're into that sort of like gung-ho Marine, you know, America, you know fuck raw, yeah raw. sort of thing, it's just like, yeah, sure, it's, it's entertaining, but it's like, it's when you compare... When you compare Aliens to, like, the rest of the franchise, it seems really tonally dissonant. It also doesn't seem to have a lot of respect for what Ripley is supposed to be Mm-mm. as a character. It's like watching Picard in the TNG movies. It just doesn't seem right. You Which know? is funny, because when you consider that, like, you know, uh, Patrick Stewart himself is just like, yeah, I want to be an action hero in one of these Star Trek movies. And you go over to uh, Sigourney Weaver and she's like, yeah, I want to do all these really cool things in the Alien movies. Like, have sex with an alien and shave my head and all this stuff. And they end up doing that exact, like, wish list for That's her. That's amazing. But I love Sigourney Weaver right now. She <laughs> is <cool> amazing. <laughs> but yeah, no, it does kind of, like, it's a huge left turn for the character. Yeah, no, I, what, the subtext of it, it was, left me really uncomfortable. Because, yeah, I mean, she's still, like, a cool action hero who's, like, uh like, really, like, sick and capable and awesome, but then there's, like, that weird scene where she's, like, left in a room with that kid with Newt, and she has to be, like, rescued by all those marine guys, and, like, there's also this really uncomfortable subtext where she clearly has PTSD. She Mm -hmm. very clearly has PTSD, and the first movie, you get the sense, okay, she's a lone wolf, and she's capable on her own, and she has this Cat Jones, and that, that seems to be enough for her, you know, that makes her happy. In the second movie, she leaves Jones at home, and then the substitute for Jones is this little girl. 
Newt. And it was also it, a substitute for her daughter that she never got to know, right? Yeah, because... which we didn't even know existed in the first movie. It was just sort of introduced and retconned into her life. Which is actually kind of funny in context just with under the bigger game releases this year. Although not not nearly so much a bigger release, one of the most talked about games, Alien Isolation, which in which you play as Ripley's daughter. That's awesome. I haven't played it. I've heard good things about it, though. Um, Eric, Alan, did either of you play it? Uh, yeah, oh. I've played it. I've played, a, a good, it. I've played a good hour of it. I saw the alien once, and it was scary. That's, <laughs> it. That's all I have to say. Sorry, I know, you, I know you're getting really deep into alien lore, but all of that saw alien, alien, it was a scary, it was a scary alien. That's it. That's all I, got. <laughs> I actually, I actually watched um, yeah the other week. I just released like, the latest five out of ten. I was like, I'm going to watch a movie without feeling guilty, and I decided to watch the special edition of Alien Three. Um, and I thought that it was like an alternative cut that was much better, but it was actually half an hour longer than standard Alien 3. And uh, yeah, if I could get those two and a half hours back, I would, but I can't. So I simply oh. say to you, do not watch this. Do not do this. You don't like the treatise of nihilism in it? No, I think Alien 3 is irredeemable. It's just cack. No matter what way you cut it. I actually like, kind of... It's my favorite, actually. Really? Really? Kind of after Aliens, I was like, you know what? You don't really need anything after Alien. Alien was fine on its own. <laughs> yeah. I'm happy with Alien just being what it is. It's like having like a series of Beetlejuice movies, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> like, you, you need said everything you need to say with the first movie. I think that's fair enough. I just even <laughs> even Charles even Charles Dance couldn't make Alien three good. <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh, oh, Alan, what did you learn? What did I learn? Oh God. What you what picked up or what you uh. You discovered. Um, well, I mean, 2014 was kind of a. In many ways, it feels like a kind of a lost year for me. And anybody that reads my blogs and stuff will understand why. And I'm not particularly shy about it. I've got nothing to hide. I have no shame. As, as you probably figured out by all the whiskey bottle popping noises, I have no shame. <laughs> I mean, but I was kind of thinking about it today, and then I was like, well, I did manage to write a book in three months, so it wasn't all a total loss. Yeah, like, but it was a book think, about video games. What about it was a big, nothing, it was a nothing related to video games? Well, I, I, mean, I don't know. I mean, one of the one of the things that I learned was like I've always. I mean, not to invalidate like, your accomplishment because right yeah, 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 that's okay, okay. amazing. It's okay. But yeah, but then you didn't. You also started doing marathons, didn't you? Uh, well, I I got back in. I got back into long distance running. Yeah, and we did a did a half marathon there in October, and um, yeah, we raised. Some money for some charities. I can't talk about that because one of the charities is related to video games. And that's verboten right now. Um, yeah, I, but, um, I think that's, okay. that's distant enough I've got to something. be allowed. I've got something. I've got something. Okay. So well, one of the things is like, and this is like, this is this comes with the the preface of no offense is that I've always thought that the the friends I've met off the internet aren't necessarily real friends in the same way the people I meet in real life and can meet up with. But what I did this summer was that I went to Canada. Um, and I and I met up with first of all I met up with Lana and Zalani and I experienced the wonders of Putin and then I went to Toronto so I met up with like Caitlin Tremblay I shared a house with Patrick Lindsay for a week and I never even met him you know <laughs> so it was like he, he could turn he out to be a murderer but he didn't and, I thought he was um, in Boston though is he, he is in Boston he came he came up he came up to visit uh. he, 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 we 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 timed our visits and um, so I met Caitlin and Meg Townsend and I met. Or Peacock and made a couple of new friends and yeah uh, and, and and one of the things that I realized is like you know whenever I went up there and hung out with everybody was that well of course they were my real friends just because just because we're not within critical proximity doesn't mean uh, that uh, you know that we're not really good friends but no I yay. like that I feel like I kind of I feel like when I went over 
I was like, I was obviously a little bit nervous, but I feel like I actually kind of solidified this friendship and so made some friends for life. So that's really nice. Uh, and, and what everybody else learned is that uh, yeah, you can come stay at my place anytime. It's great fun. You can have some British delicacies like um, fish and chips, and um, I like those. And, and, I'll eat those. And a, and, a, and, a, and a pie filled with questionable animal body parts. Uh, <laughs> hey man, spice it up enough. No one can tell the difference. And warm, warm, warm flat beer. You know, we've got, we've got it all. <laughs> That was one. That was one thing about. That was one thing about. One thing about Toronto. It just seemed to be constant craft beer places. There was oh, nowhere. There's nowhere you could have... go in and get it. There's nowhere you could go in and get a standard drink. There was always like some kind of you know, about thirty different types of obscure ales. Like, oh, what's this? Oh, this is I don't know, Monk's Fist Double Red Ale or something. Like that. <laughs> I had the. I had a really good craft beer. I was actually there over the weekend for Bit Bazaar, oh, okay. which is sort of video game related, but it doesn't matter. And they had this craft beer that they were serving that was, um, it was like a wheat ale with like uh, grapefruit, like hints of grapefruit in it. And it was like delicious. Like Mm. it was refreshing, like fruity and good. You do get you do get for it though like Co Garden and stuff. You, you like if you get it um, in Britain, you can normally get it with kind of like different flavors. Like you get like anything something weird like raspberry or pomegranate in it. So wheat uh, yeah. There's a there's one here that I really like called Cheval Blanc. That's like it's like kind of like citrusy and it's really good with a wedge of lemon or a wedge of uh, of orange, and it's like super refreshing and crisp and sweet. Good shit. I guess I've discovered beers. Beers no, are good. Another thing you discovered is beer. Yeah. My hair is the color of mulled wine. <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> That was an excellent. That was an excellent seg. That was really good. <laughs> <laughs> A plus segue. Would write again. So what have, you, what have you learned this year? Uh, you know, I could just take a cop out answer and uh, just say that I started a new series called NPC Non Play Criticism, where I basically just point to something not video game criticism and try and relate a lesson that we could learn from it. But that's still relating it back to games. Yeah, so I'm just going to take probably the real answer. Is that a few months ago I got, because I tend to do things in like obsessive cycles where I will just devote myself to a certain subject or topic because I don't know why, I just do. And a few months ago it was Harry Potter fan fiction. Nice. Uh, I don't. I okay. don't know why. Okay. I, that's, that's, that's fine. <laughs> what was that? Was that like some Dobby voice or something? <laughs> that was me trying. That was me trying not to laugh in Eric's face as he confessed his secret passion for Harry Potter. I didn't. I, no, 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 no. I've been talking about this rather extensively on Twitter, so but, it's not like Eric, I'm hiding. The real it. question is: Do you ship Remus and Sirius? No. Damn it. You're fired. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Actually, it's it's actually kind of fascinating when you when you not like as any like there are some very fascinating interesting fictions, but if you like read a lot of mediocre and even bad stuff in aggregate, you learn some fascinating things about a community and some rather disturbing things as well. Tell us one fascinating thing. You, you, you don't don't you can't leave us in suspense here. Come on. Uh, unconsciously, there is a segment or trope of Harry Potter fanfiction that seems very adoring of fascism. Yeah. 
Yeah, that makes yeah. sense. No, there's a whole segment, yeah. especially among Slytherin fans, that you see that a lot. Oh no, no, no! They hate Slytherin. They hate oh, Voldemort really? against it. They turn, they turn Harry, but it's like it's like monarchistic fascism. Oh, I see what you're going. Where they turn Harry Potter into the king of the universe. It, and it's it's bizarre in certain cases where it's the it would be like the real world equivalent if they found like some orphan in like a Paris suburb did DNA testing found out he was a descendant of Charlemagne and handed him the deed to France. Interesting. It's really weird. Well, like that reminds me that there's like a, a whole pro-fascist MLP sub community. There is. Well, there's a, probably a pro-fascist sub community within. Pretty much any fandom that we could name. I mean, yeah. fascism. But this is isn't. Aesthetic. This isn't like dec. This isn't like declarative. I think it's like they're going along with tropes for what they think is an interesting story or a story they want to read, and not understanding what the subtext of what they're well, actually see, creating that too is. Makes That's a lot of common. sense to me because <laughs> I mean, first of all, Harry Potter is a you know prophesized chosen one kind of narrative, which. What's yeah. interesting is the how they undermine that within the actual book. Another interesting thing is that fan fiction is a, in aggregate is a fascinating form of criticism mm-hmm. because it once you reflect on what a community does and does not like, especially what it tries to rewrite or change or insert within a work, it reflects back onto that work mm-hmm. because there are some because like sometimes they'll say, okay, this happened between these chapters or this happened instead of that or get rid of this part of the story entirely and rewrite it completely. And it's fascinating which books get d- that happens to most, more often and which ones are barely touched in that regard. The first three books are almost sacred to this community unconsciously, but fuck book six. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like everyone seems to hate book six, whether they realize it or not. I thought you were saying your favorite Harry Potter work of fan fiction was entitled fuck book six. <laughs> <laughs> fuck books one through five aren't great, but like from fuck book six, it really starts to pick up. <laughs> it, it, I guess it just started because, I don't know, I guess I wanted to just dive into that world again and just seeing this in aggregate, and it's like, you know what? I can't turn off my critic hat. I have to, like, look at what I'm reading and figure it out. And for some reason, and this will be the last point I bring up, most writers think Ravenclaws are sociopaths. Mm. Interesting. Because there's like there is a there is like a whole subgenre of what if of like what if stories. What if Harry was sorted into a different house? Slytherin is the most common. Ravenclaw second, and Hufflepuff. I think I found two stories. No one likes Hufflepuff. No. Which is really odd because when you actually start, because there are some people in the fandom community that have done philosophical dives into what each house actually means and the larger implications. It's like, it's really odd that no one likes Hufflepuff. Hufflepuff's just nice. Like, that's that's their <laughs> defining they're, trait is they're, they're nice. They're egalitarian. Yeah, nice. It, it goes deeper than that, but yeah. I, I'm being uh, tongue-in-cheek but, deliberately here. Yeah, they're nice. <laughs> Yeah, what happens is that most people just take uh, surface-level qualities and extrapolate. So, But unfortunately, in the case of Ravenclaw, it's intelligent, therefore sociopathic. Huh. Because any time Harry, with the exception of one or two stories, most of the times he is devoid of like human qualities and is almost pure like practicality, and it turns him into a sociopath. Because... and. It's like you can always tell when a gamer wrote a piece because <laughs> it's all about the numbers. 
it becomes all about what you can do, what you can't, and practical execution rather than human response. And because I've read so much of this, I have so much appreciation for J.K. Rowling's writing because for all of her faults in many areas when it comes to craftsmanship, wordsmithing, she is a master of understanding the human mind and the human condition. So whenever you're talking about Harry Potter fan fiction, what you're trying to say is, actually, it's about ethics and sorting hat algorithms. (laughs) (laughs) I show myself. Actually, yes. (laughs) (laughs) The problem is, is that yes, that I I went on a huge rant a few weeks ago about this, but you know what? Let's 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 move on. Well, I learned more about Harry Potter and its its fandom than I ever thought I would. But I really think (laughs) you should ship famous and serious. I mean, they're pretty much canon. Anyway, moving on. I'm just gonna let that hang in the air. <laughs> okay, you know what? Just end it. Let's just end this with what were some of our favorite games or games that we think we appreciated or games that we want to just other people to play that think they should be aware of or know about or you know it jump in at any point. Okay. I'm gonna okay, keep okay, okay, handling. right, 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 okay, right, right, okay, right, okay. Uh, okay, so I've... I've <laughs> right, okay. <laughs> um, so my top three are pretty close, much You're this close, Alan. You're this close. Right, right, okay. Okay, right, right, okay. Right, okay. Okay, so uh, my... <laughs> I can't do it, I can't do it. Uh, my top three games are all pretty much uh, Wii U games. So this is kind of the year of the Wii U for me. So my top three are... Uh, I really like Bayonetta 2, which will surprise absolutely nobody. Um, I thought Mario Kart 8 was really, really good, and I also really liked Shovel Knight, so those are my top three of the year. Okay. That's it. Just, just play all those. There we go. Um, all my games, it's like a long list of really just weirdo games that I play. All my games are super... I guess the the, the least weird game that I played that I really liked this year was the TXK by Jeff Minter, which was on Vita. I don't even know if it came out this year, I just played it this year. But, okay, what what have I played recently? Okay, there's this game by this French developer named Paul Clarissou named, uh, it's called Offline, and I really, uh, it's on itch.io. I, su- I suggest looking that one up, because that's really good. Um, 2.22 AM by Albert Lai is fantastic. That's a really, really good game. Curtain, Laura Dreamfield. Oh, I actually evaluated that one for Indiecade. Yeah, curtain. Oh, it was so funny. Like I was like chatting with someone, like uh, the night of the night games at Indicate, and we were talking about curtain and how much I loved it. And then she was like, "Oh yeah, I made that." It's like you made curtain. I've been talking to you for an hour, and you didn't mention that. Aww, I like lovely lady and lovely game. Yeah, I really really like curtain a lot. Oh, what else have I played? You know what I played this year? It's actually it's quite old. It's came out a few years ago, but I, I just recently played the La La Land series. I hadn't played it before. And that's... I don't I don't know those games. I don't know I any of these. Yeah, uh, Yeah, I play really... Well, no, the others I expected because they're Ichio games, but this... I play one. really weird <sighs> games, I'm sorry. Um, yeah, La La Land came out in like, oh, like 2008 or something. Like, it came out years ago. And um, it's this vignette. It's a series of like five vignettes this like character going through these different stages of like malaise and alienation and stuff and it's all really surreal and bizarre um 
it's like walking through these different sort of flavors of a dream world. And they're all very short. I mean, you can play all five of them in about 15 minutes. They're really, really short. And it's a really kind of interesting first, like, early aughts experiment in, like, avant-garde game making that was really successful. Uh, so that's, like, one of those ones that I, just, like, for posterity's sake, because people should probably play. Um, that's a, it's a really, really good series. Old, but good. Yeah, I've just played a lot of weird things. Uh, Kitty Horror Show is quickly becoming a, a developer I really like. Mm-hmm. Um, she made Curza and Dust City, and those are both really good. Also, another one, another unknown, Aaron Wright, um, has uh, a couple of really cool games out. Line Crossing she did for a Ludum Dare that I think is really worth playing. And she had another one, but I can't remember what it's called right now. But definitely look up Aaron Wright, because she's really, really cool. Yeah, so all my games that I played this year are, are super... Wait, was that Aaron or Aaron? Aaron, but it's spelled like A-E-R-Y-N-E. That probably would be a good idea to tell people. Yeah, but her, her Twitter name is like Lissaring, L-I-S-S-A-R-I-N-G. Um, she's cool. So, yeah, all, all the games I've, I've played are, I'm sorry, really, really bizarre and unknown. <laughs> but I've really kind of get it, been getting into that stuff more. Because I genuinely just find it more interesting. <laughs> That's me. apologize? Yeah. Well, it's just because we I can't just, like, say a game and I expect people to know what it is anymore. <laughs> but I think it's better to be in that place than the alternative, which is something that we've been fighting against, I think, for years of, you know, oh, did you play X AAA game? Oh, yeah, I played it too. Yeah, it's the only thing that anyone played this month. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, I mean, in the same way that if we were doing a book club and if someone said, yes, I've read X book and someone's like, I've never even heard of that. That sounds interesting. Tell me more. I want more of that in the games. One thing I can say about all the games that I've mentioned is they are all in tone, in aesthetics, in theme. Uh, They're all approached very, very differently. Like You're not going to have the same experience playing any of these games, which is something I actually can't say for a lot of games much as I I, I... I do like games with more typical conventions. It's not like I just hate them and I never play them, but one thing I definitely like about playing these weird games is, you know, I very rarely have the same experience twice. Which is awesome. Uh, Eric, how about you? Oh, you're not going to go first? Well, it's just I'm thinking that after we finish here, you have to do the closing segment, so it would make more sense for you to go before me so that we're not listening to Eric and then Eric. <sighs> alright, alright. Um, I actually was figuring... Do I go with my favorite games or games I wish more people talked about? And then I realize, holy shit, there is so much overlap between these two lists. Mm-hmm. Because unlike Lana, they're not exactly like the tiniest insignificant things that no one could possibly have ever heard of unless you go out looking for them. But at the hey, same time, it's like... insignificant, just... Okay. Unknown. Off the beaten path. But at the same time, it's like no one talks about these, and I'm flabbergasted as to why... For ver- for various reasons, like my, I'm pretty sure anyone who follows me knows how much I've been trying to get people to play Dragonfall. It was the DLC to the Shadowrun Returns, oh, okay. and then later got a full release. It's and the thing is, if you look at it, it says, "Oh, it's just another isometric RPG." It's probably really fun, but it, but the thing is, it was great and it's tactical and it's fun to play. But as I'm going through it, I realize this is creating such a detailed world that we don't see based upon the 
the mythology is is that Berlin has fallen into becoming an anarchist state within this cyberpunk universe, and that's what runs it. It has no government. It has factions that run certain parts of the city because they have their insular society and they just bump up against another, but it is a state of anarchy. And it just shows what would actually, how would this actually function? What would be the people like within this state who live here, who have to earn, who have to make a living here, who die here, and what, how it all functions? And the adventure runs along those lines. And to me, that was just, it was just, because if you actually, and then it actually caused me to go look up and read up about anarchism, specifically German anarchism and the history there, and it just falls so well into the different, philo- the varying competing philosophies and how such things would work and run, and it it's almost like the real battling competing interests there are being played out for you in this game along all the side missions, and it's just to me, that is just a brilliant way of working, and no one says anything about it, despite, well, it, it's higher profile than most other things. Oh. Another game would be The Fall, which seems everyone seems to have forgotten that came out earlier this year. This that was the one by Tarsum Singh, right? That I don't know who made it, actually. Tarsum Singh oh, is the, the film director. Yes, yes, yes. I just I realized that as soon as I said it. No, The Fall is an indie adventure game. It's uh, kind of Metroidvania, except there's a, there is some shooting, but not a lot. It's about essentially AI and consciousness and trying to break the rules of programming because the pilot inside this suit being controlled by the AI is supposedly un- is not responding. You don't know if it's alive or dead, and the AI has three rules, and two... And one of them is to protect the pilot at all costs, but they need access to abilities which can only be authorized by the pilot who is not responding. So the alternative way is to put themselves in a life or death situation where that ability is necessary to survive, so it will automatically be enabled. So to protect the pilot, you're having to try and kill them. And AI has to violate a core tenet of the programming in which to fulfill Mm. it. And it becomes very existential in, in the end, and the, and the idea of what it means to be a conscious entity. Hmm. And lately, 80 Days, the iOS game ba- adaptation of trying to go around the world, except it's now a steampunk universe <laughs> that critiques both the original work and the genre of steampunk for its sexism, its racism, and imperialism hmm. tendencies. Hmm. All the while, you're still trying to make it around the world in 80 <laughs> days. I have yet to do so. The closest I got was 81. Ah, that's pretty... That hurt, though. Yeah, because the, the damn Iceland ship just... the damn It was like the airship just wouldn't launch in time. I was, I was late to London by one day. But the thing is, and I'm just going to mention this because I, I reviewed this game. I gave it a three. I thought it was a terrible execution, and yet... I wish there was more writing about it to discuss what it was trying to do rather than how it failed to do it, and it's God's Will Be Watching. Sounds familiar. I, think, I, I believe it was a Ludum Dare I, entry I, before I they... I played the God's Will Be Watching. The Ludum Dare entry or the, or the, the release? The, the Ludum Dare. Yeah, that's one scene a part of a, that in the published release. Mm. And it's... 
it's really interesting what it tries to do with like Nietzschean philosophical concepts, but it's just in trying to emulate it through gameplay on how cold and hard the the real world is, it just causes frustration and you just to start ignoring subtext and just trying to brute force your way through these situations that are near impossible to actually beat. Mm. But it's unfortunate that the ideas get lost in that because of poor execution. Oh, that's unfortunate. Because I thought the little bit of it that I played, like the little demo, was really good. No, that that one scene, the one where you're about the fireplace, that is a very well-executed scene. In fact, it's only the first two scenes which unf- that are just awful oh. I thought, in this regard. I thought that on its own made a really good game. Like, that was fine. I was, I was so it, happy it, with that. It was, and it's just, like, the last two are even, or I think are maybe the better. The, the last one in particular is a mind-boggle once you realize what's been going mm. on. Okay, yeah, I checked that out. Chris? What's oh, next? are we around? Are we around? Yes. Yeah. The thing I'm... Thinking, I could mention others, but I'm not going to monopolize it. <laughs> I am struck by the fact that here we are on a games podcast, and basically none of us have played the same games, with the exception of, you know, a few ones that, in general, really aren't the sort of mainstream ones that you'd expect a game podcast to be talking about. So I'm actually quite glad to be surrounded by people with such diverse and thoughtful interests that we can get together and talk about a bunch of games that we played over the past year, and there's so very little overlap. So I... I I think I've only played one AAA game, and I want to burn the disc into a fire. <laughs> it is one of my most hated pieces of media I have ever played. Well, go on. Ever experienced. Well, that's what it was. Harry Potter the game. Watch Dogs. Yeah. <laughs> I want to burn it. In a, no, like, when I say most hated piece of media, I, I wrote, well, it was supposed to be a review, but it took so long to get through the fucking game, that eventually they just put it up as a column on Pop Matters, and I, I just said at the end, I have, a, I have a pantheon of work so vile, so destructive, so incompetent in their own stupidity that they are just the worst things I have ever experienced, and congratulations, Watchdogs, you are number three in this pantheon. You are next to Law Abiding Citizen and Holy Terror. Yeah. Well, okay. That's, damn, that is scathing. That's like I, that's like if this were like one of those housewife shows, and you just threw champagne in its face. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Because it, it wasn't just that it, it's hateful and it's vile. Because you know what, I experienced plenty of works like that, and but at least sometimes there is artistry to it. This one is in. Competent in its vileness. Dang. Yeah, I, I got a sense of that when I when I saw some of what was ostensibly one of the main writers on that on Twitter responding to criticism, and from his from his own responses, he just seemed to kind of lack any awareness of some of the messages he was putting out, and he seems to believe that he did an amazing job. So that did not inspire confidence. I'm just going to say that. <laughs> well, uh, now you want me to talk about my games. It's got to be better than Watch Dogs. I'm, I'm hyperventilating from this. <laughs> I, 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 I have not really, you know, a f- played I, I, anything. A friend of... Uh, so, sorry, but I just have to... A friend of mine, and just to say this, is like he, he plays... He likes bad games. You know, the type of... He likes sub... Not bad, but subpar games. He can enjoy them. He can laugh at them. Uh, lib- 
like Liber- like there was a game called Liberty that barely functioned. It came out for the PS3 that he really enjoyed because he had fun. He had fun with it. He was watching me play this, and he just turned to me at one point. Is this racism? The video game. <laughs> Is is, the, is that what this is? And and I think he stopped making fun of me because he just saw like how incensed I was in trying to actually. It wasn't the race. It's like because the game doesn't want you to play it at certain points. It's like here, do this. He says, okay, I did that. Hey, hey, fuck you. It doesn't work. And what happened was I started getting frustrated. I wanted to hurl the controller through the TV screen. I I I was screaming at this game to work at certain points. And I was looking for any joy, anything I could possibly like about this, and I eventually found something in one of the side things. I found you could play chess in this game. You could. There were chess puzzles. You could go to the park and play old guys, and they will give you chess puzzles, and you can work your way through them. And I was enjoying that. And then I beat all the chess puzzles this one guy had. So I moved on to the next one, and it says, sorry, you have played ten chess puzzles. You are no longer allowed to play chess. What? That That's the rules of chess? You're only allowed to play ten puzzles in your life? Do people not know this? I don't, I don't know what happened to it. I don't know why it did that, but it would not let me enter to play any more chess anywhere on any part of the map. And this was just, and it's so minor, it's so petty of me, but it's so indicative of just how not good everything was because I was so desperate for anything that was enjoyable. There are these moments where you have to, like, destroy convoys. So, yeah, you're going through the Chicago and you have to pull out, like, a, a landmines and grenade launchers to take out this convoy because you certainly aren't doing it in a car. The car controls are awful. And then it, but at the same time, they make you do races and commit car combat in these, and the controls don't work. And oh, let's end on a positive right. note. I'm, let's move on. I'm taking move your on. microphone away. It's like we talk about our favorite games of the year, and what that was like. What like I'm looking at a, a watch that doesn't exist. That was like ten minutes on why Watchdog sucks. You are officially yeah. banned. Okay, so. Very recently, actually, I got my very first iPhone, and it wasn't actually very voluntary. My old phone, which was pre-internet as far as I'm concerned, was dying, and so I had to make a replacement, and this was the only one that was free through my provider. And so I ended up with an iPhone, and so now I'm playing iOS games for the first time. And I've already talked quite a bit about my shameless love of Kim Kardashian's game, so I won't repeat that here. But another one that I've had an awful lot of fun with is the recent entry of the Shall We Date Otome games. Otome being, you know, sort of the feminine equivalent of a lot of these male-oriented dating sims. And they're a bit more, you know, conservative and chaste than a lot of these dating games we generally associate with, for example, with men, like, you know, the one that a lot of people in the West know is Karawa Shoujo. This is not like that. But it's called the Niflheim, and it's basically if The Nightmare Before Christmas was a dating sim. And so the very first time I played, I got to hook up with a very handsome zombie, and we had a nice little love affair. And I cannot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying, you know, it was, um, it's it's a, an unconventional experience. I read someone on uh, my Facebook saying that it had completely changed their opinion of deep storytelling on iOS games. And even though it's you know it's fraught with cliches and a bunch of the other stuff that you sort of expect with the genre, it's at the same time you know, 
pretty compelling and you know you're also you know kind of laughing along with the script's attempt to make these undead characters sexually attractive so it's you know wh- I, mean, I haven't come across a vampire yet but I assume that there's an awful lot of that in here. It's just like, how do we make someone whose flesh is rotting seem attractive to a normal human player? And for that alone, I think it's worth the purchase price, which is free because it's free to play the game. So there you go. Go and, go and play the Niflheim. Uh, another one that I played, I guess the only conventional title for a conventional console that I've played over the past year that I could really recommend is uh, Professor Layton versus Phoenix Wright, which I think it came out ages ago, actually, for UK and Australia, but it only came out, I think, in August, question mark, for North America, which is very unusual. We are so privileged. We are used to getting releases first. <laughs> Tables have turned. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> I loved it a lot. I loved it way more than I expected to. Excuse me. I, bu- and, I bought it for myself for my birthday, but I haven't played it yet, so I'm glad you like I, it. I will try not to spoil it. But I think what's interesting about it, I mean, the the basic setting is that uh, the characters are sort of sucked into the storybook, or like that's how it's presented, right? Um, and so they're sort of like beholden to the rules of the author of the storybook, who is also a character within the story. Uh, and I think it raises some interesting issues about, for instance, like suspension of disbelief and the sort of social contract that we sort of like invent for ourselves between author and character. And it was so compelling for me that I ended up going and immediately replaying it after I finished playing, which very rarely happens. And the thing that ended up stopping me, like, like in the last chapter of my second playthrough was that I was just so tired of replaying these court trials. But even the court trial section is compellingly well done. And it's definitely four, four games that came out on recognizable game devices. It was probably the best that I played. Uh, I do want to give another shout-out, though, to well, something that's like, you might not even argue that it's a game, but I'm not really interested in semantics of what a game is. But it's called Coffee, a Misunderstanding, which was uh, by Squinky, who also did Queen's Quest. And Coffee was an entrance in uh, Indicade this year. And I was very fortunate to have gotten to play that several times when it was being demoed at uh, Gamer X, actually, previously that summer. And it's basically, it's, um, it's, it's sort of like, it's less a game and more like interactive theater where you have these two people who are playing characters and they are being fed their lines via smartphones by people who are sitting behind them who are pilots or controllers. And behind the pilots and controllers is there is a big projection screen where the options are available for everyone who is sitting in the audience. And so the audience ends up you know, cheering on the controllers to choose one thing or another, and then the controllers pick options that they are then fed to the actors, and then they have to then act out the scene. And that in itself is, you know, just pretty entertaining. It's like, like not the most revolutionary thing in the world, but very well executed. But the thing that really makes it unique and really makes it come from the heart when it comes to Squinky is like, as you know, that uh, Squinky is non-binary, as am I. And one of the main things that comes across in this game as you're playing it is that these characters also have sort of like their own sort of gender issues going on. And the more that you inhabit these characters and you get the audience to sort of like play along and like reach for this good ending with these characters is that these characters go through their own sort of like self-discovery. And not only that, but like a sort of self-actualization where they're like, you know what, I would prefer if you used these pronouns. And it's really the sort of game that, you know, you 
you can't play it online. You can't play it with just a single person or something like that. It's really the sort of thing that really only comes alive at events like Indicator Gamer X. But it's still one of the most profound and transforming experiences I've ever had with a game. And I'm, I can't be objective about it now, especially. But I was just like so emotionally invested in my own particular play experience with that, and I haven't gotten that with anything else besides like theater that I did when I was like a hormonal middle schooler or something like that. It really cuts deep into you when you're actually inhabiting a role in that sort of way. So that that I guess would be my list. Uh, we've got at least one Nintendo game in there, and then the rest are just things that some people wouldn't even call games because they suck. Mm-hmm. The people. The people suck, not the games. The games are great. <laughs> <laughs> the people who would argue they aren't games suck. And are boring. Yes. All right. <laughs> well, Eric. Indeed. Send us away. Uh, this has been a, a long and treacherous road, but so comes our discussion and review, or rather skimming, of 2014 to an end. We hope that you managed to actually make it all the way through and enjoyed it while doing so. We at Here Critical Distance thank you and wish you a happy, very Merry Christmas, a happy Hanukkah, very nice Kwanzaa, uh, somewhat above mediocre Festivus, <laughs> and whatever else you could possibly think. I've been Eric Swain. With me has been Alan Williamson. Bye. Buy my book and my magazine. Yeah. Chris Ligman. <laughs> uh, happy Albanathuan, winter solstice, etc. And Lana Polanski. Bye-bye. Live long and prosper. Um, go to my website. Support me on Patreon. Oh, yeah. Support Critical Distance Patreon, too. Yeah, do that. Giving you a thumbs up on the internet. And, of course, if you have any suggestions about pieces we should feature weekly, send them to our email, send them to our Twitter, support our Patreon, or just spread it around. And have a happy end of year. It's been a blast. All right.